Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Bassini. We're presented by CLNS Media today on the show. Coles Wicker's here. I am like half here. My brain is fried. I've worked, I think, 40 hours in the last three days. Uh, probably a little bit more than that. It's draft It's draft week. It's fun. It's great. Uh, I've been... It's funny. We we're planning on recording this podcast, and I'll get to Cole at some point. I don't know when. We'll see. Um, I was planning on recording this co- podcast with Cole around like 10 a.m. or so, and then, you know, the Mike Conley trade happens, and we end up in a circumstance where... Uh, there are just so many picks on the table, and I'm trying to get intel from you know everybody in the NBA, basically. So it's now 4 o'clock Pacific time. <laughs> Cole and I are here. Cole is much more lucid than I am. And we're just going to talk about the Mike Conley deal, maybe some general draft preview stuff, and then we're going to go into our, uh, or at least my top 10 on my big board. So that was a rambling intro that <laughs> will uh, be a microcosm of this podcast. So Cole, how are you doing, man? Definitely more sane than you are at this point. Hasn't been as hectic as I thought it would be. Of course, I'm not on the Intel side. I'm mostly just figuring out how to order and present, convey information on my air quotes board. So that's been my task today with a couple of uh, podcasts mixed in. So uh, it's going well. I'm really amped for tomorrow. Um, we've obviously been covering these guys, following all the prospects for you know over 10 months for you and for me in some parts, multiple years. So I'm just kind of excited to see where these guys fall uh, tomorrow afternoon. I don't mean to say that like I'm done with the kids involved because I like genuinely am such a huge fan of so many of the people involved in this class. Um, You know, like DeAndre Hunter is awesome. Uh, Nasir Little is a great dude. Uh, Grant Williams is obviously a personal favorite of this podcast. Uh, there, there are plenty of others that you know we can go up and down the line. Rui Hachimura is you know no secret someone that I'm a really big fan of. Uh, But I'm ready to be done with this like process basically (laughs) like i'm ready to see these kids in summer league see how they get to play in the nba and get to move on to 2020 i mean i've done a lot of you know pre-intel work into 2020 i've talked to a lot of the kids there already um you know there will be very little rest for the wicked i will be um writing about free agency and then moving straight into 2020 draft stuff that can be released during my honeymoon in september uh while (laughs) no one can complain and piss and moan at me so it's going to be the perfect uh scenario for me um So I'm just like ready to see these kids get in action again. Like it's been a long three months basically since we've seen any of them play actual games and even getting to see them again in summer league is going to be really great. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm just selfishly a little bit ready to move on to a new class and kind of start over again. When you get in your head during three months of no basketball action, it's just ready ready to move on. So I'm hoping a lot of these guys end up in good situations. It's, It's, in some ways a dependent player draft a lot of it and i'm just hoping it falls the right way because i I can speak for you as well that we're both just very pro these kids like putting in being in positions to succeed so hopefully that happens tomorrow yeah no question uh so let's talk about the mike conley deal mike conley finally is no longer a member of the memphis grizzlies he's been traded to the utah jazz it is Jay Crowder, Kyle Korver, Grayson Allen, number 23, and a future first round pick that is that can only be conveyed 8 through 14, I believe, in 20, is it 2020 or 2021? Can you, you have the uh, protections on it? Yes, it's both. Yeah, it conveys 8 to 14, 2020, 2021. Then it becomes protected 1 through 6. 
2022, one through three, 2023, number one overall in 2024, and then it converts to two second rounders in 2025. So it's worth noting this is probably a 2022 pick. Yes. And 2022, for those who don't know, is expected to be the very strong draft that features uh, both one and duns and high school classes. I think the folks at the ringer are calling it the double draft. Um, I kind of like that name. What do you think? Are you in on that? Yeah. I mean, until we can find something different, I think as a placeholder, at least it's it's viable. Yeah, sure. Um, But yeah, the 2022 draft is the one that's expected to be quite strong. And to get a pick in that draft in all likelihood, I think is a big win for Memphis, even if it's probably going to be, you know, somewhere 20 to 30 in all likelihood, given that Utah looks to be in pretty good shape going forward here. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love it for Memphis, just with the pick protections. You can tell they really worked at getting the best possible conveyance if it happens. So, of course, you mentioned 8-14. to 14, Utah's probably going to be better than 2020 and 2021. You're just betting on that deeper class in 2022. So I thought it was actually a pretty sharp deal for Memphis as far as this pick in, in particular. Yeah, some folks around the NBA have kind of questioned the Memphis front office to me a little bit over the course of just like the pre-draft process and stuff. Um, you know, I think they did really well here. I think that it's a new front office, so I think there are just generally bound to be questions, maybe. Um, maybe yep. there are people that are just skeptical in general of this whole thing. Um, but yeah, like I, I think they've done a really, really good job here. They get Grayson Allen, who struggled to shoot it this year, but like I, I have faith that he's going to shoot it. Like that's something he's always done, you know? Um, if he can shoot it and be like an eighth man floor spacer, that has value. Uh, number 23 in this draft is intriguing. At the very least, I'm not entirely sure what they're going to do with it or if they're going to keep it, according to David Aldridge, who uh, reported that this pick they'll listen to offers on. Um, Memphis hasn't really brought too many prospects in uh, in the pre-draft process that weren't like, um, you know, undrafted guys in all likelihood. Yeah. Uh, Like Jeremiah Martins, Kevin McLean's like guys like that. So uh, it'll be interesting to me to see what route they go. I I don't really have a great feel for that right now. That's probably the pick in my mock draft that I have the least uh, amount of certainty on. And at the end of the day here, I'm just, uh, I'm impressed that they were able to get that 2022 first rounder in all likelihood, because that is going to be a useful pick and it's going to be a useful asset for them going forward. I also think Jay Crowder is like a useful player for them, Um, either as an asset that is expiring this year and can be dealt really easily because he's on a pretty cheap deal um, or someone that like, you know, teaches toughness to the Memphis roster. Uh, it's, It's just a good deal all around for me. I definitely agree. Getting two first-round picks for Mike Conley with two years left. I mean, he has the early termination option after this next season, but you can pretty much bank on him taking that at this juncture. We'll see how the market plays out, but I think it's like $34 million in 2020. That's a hefty amount. And I think just as a culture point, they did right by Mike Conley. They they traded him to a great destination where he can really yep. compete. And they did the same thing with Marcus Gasol. So, of course, you have to do what's best for the franchise. But when you can do both, when you can operate in that dual sense of getting the best return possible, but also doing right by guys who have done right for you, were key to that entire run, the whole grit and grind era. So I really think they killed this in multiple respects. They're going to look better to you know potential free agents, potential draftees as far as how they operate. Yeah, no question. Uh, it's funny. So when this deal came out, it felt like there were very 
like strong opinions on both sides. Oh, Utah gave up too much. Oh, Memphis didn't get back enough. And I was just sitting there and I was like, no, this seems like a just totally great deal all around. And uh, I think it's worth looking at it from Utah's perspective now. Like Utah, it's hard to imagine a better fit for Donovan Mitchell than Mike Conley. Like Mike can play off ball. He can play on ball. Both of those guys can really create shots. Both of those guys can get shots. Uh, both of those guys can knock down shots. Mike is a really good defender. Donovan is a defender that is high level when he's very engaged. Um, you know, sometimes he's just such a load. He's been such a, uh, offensive focal point for them that I think his defense has suffered just a touch. But with Mike around, I think that you might even see a better defensive Donovan Mitchell because he'll have more energy to expend there. Yeah, hundred percent. I love the fit. There's no question. The fit is awesome. Uh, they're starting five, a lot of pieces that really fit properly. What have we said throughout the playoffs the last two years? They needed another creator. They needed somebody else on the perimeter that could take some initiation responsibility from Mitchell and like handle some playmaking. Now they have, you know, between Conley, Mitchell, and Ingles, they have three guys who could kind of dribble, pass, shoot, make good decisions. I think that is really going to be vital for them. And of course, with the injuries to the Warriors, all the moving parts in the West, you see an opportunity to really pounce on. And I think Conley was probably the best case scenario for what they could have reasonably acquired. I'm not as high on the value here. I did think they paid full price for Mike Conley with that 2022 pick potentially. No doubt. I just, I'm, that is a little bit rich for me. Like, I love the fit. No question there. I think it was the right move, but that part of it makes me a little uneasy to the point where I don't think it's like a home run for Utah just because of that singular pick in the year it's likely to convey. So here's here's what I would say. I wish that they would have gotten it to 2021, like the just yes. the backwards protection for 2020. And then obviously I should also mention the reason that this is able to happen, like they're trading potentially back-to-back picks in 2019 and 2020. Why is this eligible under the Coles Wicker Stepien rule, right? Uh, it's because this deal is going to go through on July 6th. The Jazz are theoretically going to make the pick for Utah or for uh, Memphis on draft night. And then on July 6th, they're going to trade that player and a future pick. And the Stepien rule only applies to future picks. Um, Exactly. So what I would say to that is this. This team now, especially with the turmoil in Houston, with the fact that we don't know who the fuck is going to be on the Lakers roster, with the Warriors, you know, in a place of questionable uh, health and questionable, you know, surrounding pieces with Draymond Green and Steph Curry next year. I am one, like, I, I legit think Utah is an NBA Finals contender now. Like, I, I, I'm just ready to say that. And anytime that you can do that, anytime that it's this wide open, if you can make yourself a Finals contender, I think you go about doing that. Like, I, I just do. Um, you don't want to sell the farm for that. I don't think they sold the farm. Like the Lakers theoretically may have just sold the farm and totally hindered themselves going forward. (laughs) Yes. The jazz didn't do that with this deal. They have somewhat hindered themselves going forward. Like they're not going to have a future first. They're not going to have Allen to move in a deal potentially, but they still have Dante Exum to potentially move in a deal along the line. Um, I think Derek Favors on an expiring deal is like a semi-valuable asset potentially for a team that like might be trying to create cap space next summer. Um, they might be able to like give them a pick if the Favors Gobert fit with these guys isn't going to work out. But I think it probably will, to be honest again, as it has for a couple of years now. And then you look at this 
just from what starting lineup on both ends of the floor is as good as this one right now with Conley, Mitchell, Ingles, Favors, and Gobert. It's really hard for me to find that like starting lineup. Like I think this is a 54 win team next year. Maybe more. Nah, probably like fifty-four. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say more. <laughs> like fifty-four. That's a high number. <laughs> I'm with all that. I'm with you 100 percent on the reason to make this deal. I'm with you how it elevates the Jazz. Again, I just I'm approaching it more from like who is paying more than this for two years and like sixty-seven, sixty-eight million dollars of Mike Conley. Um, like who's outbidding the Jazz if they give you say a 2021 pick top something protected and and you do it a different way structurally. Like I obviously get the incentive and I get the value right now and the window. I just don't know if I just, to me, it seems like they paid a little bit too much. I don't know if that's fair enough. Here here would be my counter to you. So the Pacers were involved in this. I don't, I have no idea what the Pacers like offer was. I'm going to say that right now. (laughs) This is not me reporting what the Pacers offer was. <laughs> Aggregators do not aggregate this. <laughs> um, but like, say the Pacers theoretically were to offer Aaron Holiday 18 and, you know, some future first round pick. That's a better offer, right? I don't. It depends on what depends on what they could get for Jay Crowder. So if they can flip him, maybe that's a little bit right. of a bonus. It depends on what the future deal is and the future pick. Like if it's the same pick as far as what Memphis offered, then yeah, okay, then you might have to make the deal. But if it wasn't structurally, I don't know. I, again, I just I view that as a little bit too much. And I'm not sure. I mean, if they win a, if they win a title, it's obviously not too much. Well, here, I, guess, <laughs> I guess maybe the way to put it is too. It's very easy Because everyone knew the Pacers were involved. It's very easy for the Grizzlies to say, hey, we have this on the table from the Pacers. Like this offer, Aaron Holiday is a better player than Grayson Allen. The 18 pick is better than 23. You guys are just sending these two guys along for salary fodder. Um, You know, they're offering us a second first round pick. We're more inclined to take that. You're going to have to sweeten your your second first round pick. Like, that's a very easy, even if you're lying, again, like, I don't know if that was what was on the table. Like, that's a very easy offer to play against Utah, I think. And given that, and like, we could maybe even say like Detroit, right? Like Luke Kennard is a better player than Grayson Allen and 15 is a far better pick than 23. And we could play this game over and over again, right? Um, I just think that there were enough teams that were involved or were potentially involved that could have made this very easy to play off of um, Utah. Like this isn't a um, Anthony Davis situation where Mike Conley is one year left on his deal and threatening to depart after you give up like every one of your young players um, kind of situation. Like there were enough suitors out there to play this in a you know pretty interesting manner if you were the Grizzlies. And it sounds like the Grizzlies did a good job negotiating this. And of course, with the Warriors, what's happened to them, that increased Memphis's leverage here a little bit because now teams are trying to, to capitalize on this window. So this is why you see them part, meaning Utah, part with a little bit extra here. It, it's hard for me to say without knowing what the other offers were, frankly. like It's just really hard because that's my only tie-up is that is just the protections and how, how it was geared. I think it was a masterful job by the Grizzlies here. I'm just more risk averse when it comes to picks in high value drafts and potentially high value areas. Things can really far, fall apart quickly in the NBA and parting with assets like that. Yeah, I mean, I get vaulting. I mean, the Jazz for me, they, they vault into the competitor tier, but it doesn't put them clearly over the top. 
See, that's a good question. Like, what is over the top for you? Like, do you need do you need to be the favorite for the title to do this? Like, for me, like over the top is I don't think they were a real title contender before. I now think they are a real title contender. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're that's like really maybe they're maybe fifth on my list. Like something like that. Like they might not be the number one title contender, but like their their window is now considerably more open for the next two years. Yes. No, no question there. I, I, it vaults them. I'm not sure how far it vaults them. I want to see what happens with the Lakers, what, the, how, what they do with their cap space. I'm going to take LeBron over in An- Anthony Davis over the Jazz, just pretty much straight up, if they can do even a reasonable job of filling that roster. But again, I get the approach. I get the reasoning here. It made a lot of sense. I just have the tie-ups with just the 2022 draft in particular and how the pick is structured. So do you have anything else to say about this? Like, I think Utah, like I said, like Utah's a real contender. Uh, Memphis did as well yep. as it possibly could have in, in the deal, um, trading Mike Conley. Um, it seems like waiting, maybe this is worth saying, it seems like waiting was the right move for the Grizzlies, right? Like, I don't think that this much was on the table in season. That is actually pretty fascinating. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. Again, because the demand now of the Warriors and how the climate has kind of shifted. I mean, it's a very different NBA as of the last three weeks. So I, I think you're probably right there. All right. So let's move on. We've got the Atlanta Hawks trading 44 for uh, like a future 2024 pick. So they finally got off one of their picks. They now have five picks in the draft. What do we uh, do? Do you have any strong thoughts there on Miami potentially I, buying in? Yeah. I mean, it's a good move by Miami. I think there's some depth in this class. I think a lot of people initially thought that the Hawks just sold the pick, but what happened was, Miami's 2024 pick is already owed to Cleveland, but it's a BS 31 through 55 protected pick. So it's likely that the Hawks are going to receive the other side of that protection. So if it falls within 31 to 55, it'll be a Hawks pick. So 2024, it's a while out, but at least uh, Travis Schlink, it it doesn't seem like he just sold the pick for a non-basketball asset. So I'm fine with both. Um, trying to think what else, what else has happened today? Like, this is where I'm at in my life right now. I'm trying to put (laughs) it on time for the newswire. I'm trying to put the pieces together. So I, I guess like we can say like Woj and like I can back this up too. also. Uh, Woj just said that Morant and Barrett are going two and three. Um, no surprises there, right? No surprise at all. Um, what else? What else? What else has happened? Can you can you think of anything before we move on to top 10? Just uh, Woj also tweeted about Chris Middleton declining his option and he is expected to command the five year max to stay with the Bucks or a four year max to play elsewhere. Um, yeah, it's about right. Uh, I would think that they're just going to give him the max in Milwaukee, like just not make this difficult. Kind of think they have to. Yeah. Um, Milwaukee is maybe we should talk about the fact that. Like Mark Stein said that Milwaukee is looking into trading Urson and Tony Snell because one thing that we haven't talked about yet on this podcast and something we do have to mention is Al Horford. Um, so Tony Snell and Urson Ilyasova, I swear at some point these two things will connect, at least in my brain they do. Um, <laughs> if they were to trade Tony Snell in 30 and get like very little asset capital back by a team just thinking, hey, 30 is worth $10 million of Tony Snell. They have a very real chance at like high level cap space, even accounting for the Malcolm Brogdon like cap hold that they can then pay. They would have to pay an insane amount in luxury tax um, if they were to sign someone like Al Horford. But the Milwaukee Bucks are in a very interesting, very 
positive situation now this summer, I think. Yeah, at least initially. I mean, from all reports, talking to some of the Bucks guys, like they're playing to bring back Brooke Lopez. They're playing to obviously Chris Middleton's going to get expensive if they bring back Brogdon. So it's going to fill really quickly. And they're, I don't think the organization is going to pay like a super hefty luxury tax bill. So I think that Brooke Lopez is going to be more cost effective than Al Horford, who's getting looks from primarily Dallas. I think Dallas makes a lot of sense for Horford. Um, Los Angeles as well, maybe as their third star. So it's very interesting, at least. It does throw a little bit of a wrench into this if they can get off Snell, if they can get off Urson potentially. I think the Bucks are mostly just looking to save money to pay their existing players that need to retain. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but the Al Horford thing we should talk about just from the perspective of the Celtics now. Uh, the Celtics are like rebuilding. <laughs> this happened overnight, basically. Uh, like, I feel bad for the Celtics at this stage. Uh, it's a really tough position for them, but they're going to lose Kyrie Irving and Al Horford now in this offseason, and they're not going to get anything in return for them. Uh, life comes at you fast. I think that's kind of the takeaway here. It's pretty crazy to think about. Like, there just how many different timelines Boston's been on over the last couple of years, and all of a sudden, now they have one specific timeline for how they're probably going to proceed. Now it's, you know, Tatum, Jalen Brown. They're going to be the primary focus points. It's pretty crazy moving on from, you know, Kyrie, Horford before that. Uh, good. I, I mean, they're in a good spot. I really trust that organization. They're very smart in their front office. So they'll be fine long term. It's just kind of crazy that this is where we are. Yeah, so like there have been a lot of skies falling things for the Boston Celtics uh, online over the course of the last little while. I mean, I don't really see that. Like, I think they're still going to be pretty okay. You know what I mean? Like, they still have an incredibly envious position of having two guys that people think will be all-stars long-term and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Still have Marcus Smart. Uh, you know, Robert Williams and Shimmy Ojale are at least, like, interesting young pieces on some level. Uh, they have the Memphis pick, and they have three first-round picks this year. Like, this is still a good spot for Boston. It's not, hey, our window is open and we're competing for a title and trying to win 67 games <laughs> like Bill Simmons threw out there. But, like, it's still a very envious position, I think. And while, you know, you can make the case that, hey, the window is not open and that's a problem, you know, it's still it's still a good spot to be in, I think. Like, I would not overreact to this. Right. And when you're not competing for a title, a lot of teams, when they're rebuilding and they're starting over, they don't have really any infrastructure. They don't have a coach like Brad Stevens. They don't have the young players on their roster that have already proven to be quality players. So it's definitely not the sky is falling to me. It's just crazy. It's just crazy to think about this team coming into last season, Gordon Hayward, all of these guys. It was like, this is the craziest starting five we've ever seen. Look at all this depth. And all of a sudden, you know, Kyrie, I guess, is choosing to go to the Nets. And then we see the fallout. Probably because Horford was seeking, you know, a longer deal, and the, and the Celtics looked at it realistically and said, you know, if we pay this guy over twenty million dollars a year, he's worth it as far as his playing ability. But where is that really getting us? Because now we don't have Kyrie anymore. We don't have that current right. competition timeline. Right. Uh, so Al Horford, if you were Dallas, would you rather give Al Horford like four years, a hundred million, which is the reported offer that like he thinks he has on the table, which is why he's stopping communication with Boston? Or would you rather pay Julius Randle like four years, 80 million? 
or something like that. Horford, 100%. Even though Al Horford is going to be like 37 at the end of that deal. Yep. Why? <laughs> I just think Al Horford's a much better basketball player. I think Horford, you could actually make a legitimate leap. And I get the the fit with Julius and Chris Stapps, but I just think Horford over the next two years is probably going to be a top 35-ish player. I don't think Randall, that's in the cards for him. And it really, Horford just gives you so many different dynamics to that team. Uh, I, I mean, I'm so you, definitely... you think Al, though. even <laughs> in year three, is a top 35 player in the league? When he's, maybe not, what will he be? Will he be like 36? No, maybe not year three, but I think over the next two years, I don't know if consistently throughout the regular season, but I think when it really matters, I'd still bank on Horford being in that range of caliber. And Dallas is trying to win. I think they're going to try to make the playoffs, and he, Horford helps you do that. I mean, he's just a much better player than Julius. So if we're talking the difference between like 20 million over four years, I trust Horford to hold up at least for two of those. I mean, maybe three as well. I think he's going to age better than he gets credit for. So here, here would be my question to you then. If you're Maybe. Dallas, do you the reason you're signing Al Horford is for the next two years then, right? As per yes. your thing. And you're willing to take downside on the back end, right? Like that's kind of what you're saying here, right? Sure. Do you think that they are going to be more competitive for a title in the next two years or in years three and four of that Al Horford deal? Just given where the rest of their core is. Yeah, incredibly fair. I, I'm doing this more towards in relation to Randall. And I think if you sign Randall for $20 million a year or $15 million a year, I don't think he really moves the needle at all. And I think at least Horford does. So if we're comparing those two, I would definitely go Horford. Does it work for them in a vacuum? Of course, it, Horford doesn't align with Luka perfectly. I mean, he's very far off of Luka. Same with Chris Stapps. It can, you ha- kind of have to balance effects here. Like, do they are they put in a position to win a title right now? No. Does it make them a playoff team? That is their goal. I think it probably does. Yeah, it absolutely get another does, player. I think. Yeah, I'm not, so, I'm not worried about that. But I, I do get your argument as far as, like, when Luka's probably going to be working into his prime, same with Chris Stapps, Horford's going to be on an Albatross contract, potentially, in the latter, you know, year and a half, year of his deal. So is, is there are there better options to build around the timeline? Probably, but I still think you face a similar issue with someone like Kemba Walker. I think Kemba Walker's fourth year, for example, is probably not going to be the same as the first two. Yeah, I wouldn't sign Kemba if I was them either. (laughs) Um, So who would you sign? I would legit seriously look at Julius Randle because I think I think Randle matches up better in year three and four of that deal. Like Julius, I think Julius (laughs) Randle is getting drastically underrated. This off season, he just averaged twenty one eight and four on fifty percent from the field and thirty four percent from three. While and while the big problem with him defensively is that he can't protect the rim. You have Kristaps fucking Porzingis. Like that is that takes away the biggest issue because Randall actually is not a bad defender on the perimeter in terms of being able to switch and deal with guys. So like to me, I'm not saying that Julius Randall is as good as Al Horford right now. He's absolutely not. But I think that when their window aligns to compete for a title, I think Julius Randall will be a better player than Al Horford will be um, in 2022. You know, I get the argument for sure. hundred um, percent. I'm a little lower on Randall than you. So looking at it that way, I still think so Horford, that would be my question. Why are you lower on Randall? Then? I still, I mean, offensively, you don't trust this floor spacing. Um, I get that, you know, Porzingis opening up the floor for him and like pick and roll and stuff, but I still don't think that's an optimal use. Like if you can put Horford in there, actually space as well. That's, that's just a better fit. That's a more optimal system offensively. And I don't trust, even though Randall can switch, I don't trust his like perimeter team defense. I don't really trust him in anything outside of like straight one, five switching with the play in front of him really. So 
I'm more of a holistic defender, like multiple levels and reacting off the ball and shit. And I've just never seen that from Randall at a high level. He was pretty miserable on defense last year, especially. He hasn't taken that leap. Maybe he takes a bit bigger leap in a better situation that is trying to compete. That's an argument. Um, I guess it just comes down to I'm not as high on him moving forward. I don't think he's the kind of guy you're going to find in a starting lineup on a competitive team. Wow. I think he could be. We might find okay. out. He might he might end up in Brooklyn. So, like, we, we might find out. Everybody's anyway. going to Brooklyn. <laughs> Everyone's going to Brooklyn. It's a Brooklyn party. Um, so the last thing I want to mention here, Jeremy Wu uh, tweeted out earlier that uh, the Celtics had the following players in today for a last-minute workout. Darius Baisley, Jalen LeCue, Tremont Waters, Jordan Bone, Chris Clemens, and Jared Harper. Um so that actually really lines up with something that I reported in my mock draft that the Celtics are looking to trade down from 22 basically and get second okay. rounders. Like all of those guys are second rounders. My theory on, I don't know why they want to do that necessarily. My theory on it is that the Celtics now understand that they have real cap space and want to, because second rounders are basically just roster spots, right? Exactly. They count as roster holds. Um, they want to try and open up like the million and a half extra in cap space that they would get. Yeah. I mean, that's really the only reason to do that outside of just the general value. And if they don't think the value is in that area, the draft trade back, but I I think it's more them being like a pseudo destination market for some free agents. As far as the infrastructure they've established, that has to be the reasoning, right? The white ones. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what they do in free agency. I, I don't really have a great feel for that. Um, I had them I had them with Hero, Cabin Gelly, and Porter in my mock draft. Again, like I don't know that they're gonna keep twenty-two. So uh in them having that big workout is a like large sign that they're considering doing what I kind of am reporting that they're looking at doing. Um so I'm in, I'm intrigued by this. I'm very intrigued by what Boston's gonna do over the next twenty-four hours. Cause I think that there is a real chance that like they could present some interesting opportunities both in trade up and trade down scenarios 100 percent, and i think they're another one of these teams where it's going to be very interesting to see what direction they go and we can say that for a lot of teams in this draft not just within the confines of the picks and moving around and assessing value but what what are these franchises what do they view their trajectories as i think that's really important yeah no question let's do the 10 to 1 on my uh big board now let's we're gonna start with Seku Dumbuya. Most people have Seku as their top international prospect in this class. I have Seku at number two. I think Seku is really great. I think that his upside is genuinely very high. 6'10-ish guy that uh, has fair length. I want to say it's like a 7'1 wingspan. Um, good frame, good fluid athleticism. Not like the most explosive guy in the world, but pretty explosive. Um, can handle, can attack closeouts, has potential to shoot it. Like, you watch him, and there are real shades of Pascal Siakam there. There are, especially in transition. I went back and yep. watched a ton of him for this because I wanted to see the handling and, like, the bend with the ball. And he can't really sink low like Siakam. He's more upright when he dribbles, and you see that more manifest in traffic. So when he's in the half court, he's not as good as the open court where – that lack of ability to bend and like be shifty with the ball. But his coordination is fantastic as an athlete. I think that's what I like about him. You mentioned the fluidity. 
incredibly good running the floor. That's I think he just looks like Siakam in glimpses in, in those situations. I don't think he's that flexible of an athlete. Um, we'll see. I don't think his ball handling's incredible in tight spaces. I think it's more passable in open court. Uh, but I do buy his touch, actually. Like I think his jump shot's actually underrated. Even though you have the moon ball effect and kind of the inconsistency there, the pull-ups that he hit in that 35-point game, I had never seen those from him before as far as like hang dribble pull-ups. Uh, that was kind of interesting. I, I'm not saying that's going to be anything, but that's kind of the deal with Seku is like we don't really know what he's going to look like outside of the fact that right now, just from a technical standpoint, uh, he's very far away. He is very far away. I worry that he's a second contract guy. Uh, exactly. Like Al Farouk Aminu, uh, it took Al Farouk two places, three places really, to figure out what he was and how to use his athleticism on defense and how to just kind of make his game work at this level. Seku is going to be entering the NBA at 18 years old until December 23rd. And I wonder, is he ready to play at the NBA, in the NBA even at 21? I think he can be. Like, I think there's a chance of that. But, like, this is a guy, though, that if we felt confident of his immediate translation, he'd be going forth, right? Like, it'd be like a no-questions-asked deal, right? For me, he would definitely be higher, no question. I don't know exactly where. I'd have to think about that more and, like, what that would actually look like as far as immediate translatability. Just because with him, it's very obvious that it's, you know, two, three, four, five years down the road. So he definitely has alluring traits. I would like to see him in a more high leverage situation at times. I mean, the league he plays in is fine. I, I would just like to see more of him no, with no, the no, ball. No. Let, let's, and like, let's be real with it. Like the French league is not. <laughs> okay. Um, it's very, it's athletic. It's a very athletic league, um, but it is a disorganized league for the most part. I was trying to be polite and not insult um, any kind of international following just because I'm not like the most up to date with, I know well, like obviously the ACB and everything. So good. Right. So like here, here's the deal. So, when I say that the French is not a good league, like the French league is better than like college basketball. But by the standards of Europe, I would say the Euro League, the ACB, uh, I would say the Adriatic League. Honestly, like Israel is pretty close. Israel is just a different brand of basketball. Like it's not as athletic. Um, France is in the, pretty clearly in that like second tier, along with Italy as well. You could throw in there. Um, it, it's pretty clearly in that second tier of European basketball. Yeah, exactly. And I think with his role on that team, a lot of the times as a straight off ball player, it would just be kind of nice to see him a little bit higher usage and see what he's capable of doing. Seeing some pick and roll plays, a lot of premeditated reads as far as just throwing the ball, you know, on a drop off situation to the dunker spot, expecting somebody to be there and it's a turnover. So we don't really get to see a lot of that functional skill level in situations where you could probably project him as some kind of ball handler like right now to me he's more of like an off-ball weak side shooter i do trust him with reasonable confidence with his feet set uh i, I just want to know like more what the upside is with a bigger role i agree with you um it's kind of you know again like it is kind of similar to pascal siakam in a lot of ways, like Siakam yep. did have the big role at New Mexico State, but it was just such a low competition level that we didn't really have a great feel for it. Um, a flyer that I would feel comfortable. I have him at 11 right now on my mock. I would feel very comfortable taking him in the top 11. I don't have a problem with that. I think on my board, he's more like 16, but I have a tier from basically 6 to 22, I think, is going to end up being what it is. So I'm fine with him pretty much anywhere in that range, as long as it's not like a drastic reach over 
you know, better players. I think what you're there. Here's the point with me, though, is like if you're going to take him, you're taking him to keep him for the most part. I don't think he's going to have a ton of trade value right away. You know what I yeah. mean? Like you, you're, you're investing in him multiple years. And that's what why a team like Washington, who we think is going to rebuild, that makes some sense because I don't he's going to lose value when you take him because he's not going to be ready. And, and those kinds of players, there could be upside but nobody really treats it that way unless you establish yourself in the league with shooting and with that like usually elite athleticism with more of a pedigree than this, I think. No question. Number nine, Cam Reddish. <laughs> oh, boy. Go time. Um, so I'm going to give you the floor because the thing that you said to me earlier um, before we started recording was you think that the hate has gone too far on Cam Reddish. And that's something I agree with. But I'm going to give you the floor to explain why you believe that. I mean, we all saw him struggle immensely at Duke. Uh, the two-point percentage, a lot of his statistical indicators are very poor, um, especially the finishing. It was very, very poor, and I do think that's a reflection of his lack of explosive athleticism. But let's not drop the guy into like the 20s. I think that he still has a very projectable NBA game, even though he didn't thrive at it at Duke in the role that I thought he should have crushed I know there's a transition between going from more on the ball to off, and that could have had an effect. But I do still think that he had a lot of good looks. He didn't convert. He had he was playing off maybe the two high, most high-gravity offensive players in the country. And I think he could have done better with that pretty clearly. But a very he has a, a clear NBA role and a clear NBA game if he's put in the right situation. And that's like a lot of guys in this class. I still think he's going to be a capable shooter. The low release kind of, you know, it, it's not ideal at times. But he's going to have more space in the NBA, playing from the corners. He can shoot from above the break. He can shoot in transition. Um, you know, I, I'm a bigger fan of his defense than I think a lot of people are. I think he showed aptitude off the ball. He has that foundational awareness. He uses his length very well. He's capable on the ball as far as switching. Not a dynamic switch guy, but he's much more laterally agile than someone like Chumo Kiki, for example. So. Yep. I look at him and say, like, if he falls to the Hawks, like, I think he's going to go eight to Atlanta. I think that's an excellent fit for him. I would agree. I think that that is the best possible fit for him because it's low stakes. It is a great developmental situation. And it is a coaching staff that is good at kind of dealing with situations like this. Like, yes. they will put him in the best possible position to succeed. Uh, and obviously, like, having a passer like Trey Young around could really, really help him. Like, imagine him playing the role at Duke that he signed up to play. Like, that's the thing that I think people don't think about as much with Cam, maybe. He signed up first out of that trio, out of RJ Zion and him. I would imagine that when he signed up for that, he was not anticipating that Duke was going to get both RJ and Zion. I would think that he thought he was going to play a much <laughs> bigger role in Duke, the way Duke runs, right? So... I'm not saying this like, you know, that he didn't have a good time at Duke, like he, you know, didn't like his time. I'm sure he really, really did. But it's a it's a different environment than what I think he was there to do. And because of that, I think people don't really recognize what his game was at lower levels. Like he was a point forward at lower levels. Uh, he was a guy that like ran his high school's offense, ran his AAU team's offense, was a awesome transition player. And he was that in college too. But more than that, he was this guy who could like make plays with the ball and pass. And we never really got a chance to see him do that at Duke. And I think that's where people who have seen him a lot, like I have and seen him a lot at lower levels, come away thinking that there's real upside here is because he has ball skills. 
I'm a little bit lower on his shooting ability, to be honest. Like, I think he's just going to be an inconsistent shooter. Um, and that's why I have him at nine versus, you know, what I'm about to say that you would think would push him way up the board in terms of upside. <laughs> uh, but, like, he actually has ball skills. He's the ability to make plays and pass for others. He has a, the defensive ability like you do. He doesn't lock in all the time in terms of, like, approach and mentality. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that it's a thing where he doesn't like basketball. I don't think it's a thing where he is, um, you know, a bad dude by any stretch of the imagination. I think that sometimes it just kind of, you know, un- like, locks out. Uh, like, it's his brain, like, kind of locks him out of his body, basketball-wise. And it just doesn't uh, look like he's engaged. He's as engaged as he needs to be on the floor. And I think there's a chance that if that comes along, he has a chance to be very good. He has a chance to be very, very good. Now, the one thing that I will say that I don't think he's going to be as good of a shooter is like, you know, Duke hyped him up to be. And I don't like the Paul George, the Tracy McGrady, those comparisons. The problem Hell with no. those. Well, yeah, the problem with those comparisons is that those guys were like explosive athletes, right? Uh, Cam isn't really that. Cam is more of like a, um, you know, he'll, he'll coast along athlete. Uh, very, very hyper fluid for a guy that's six foot nine with a seven foot one wingspan. But like, he's not going to go up and throw down some wild ass like tomahawk dunk on someone, right? He's a guy that uh, is better in like second gear and changing paces and changing speeds and stuff. Oh, a hundred percent. Like the, the the entire T Mac narrative coming out of high school was just flagrantly ridiculous. Like you could watch five minutes of his highlights and, and realize that was absurd just based on his athleticism. Like he's not the athlete that people build him up to be. That was the case the entire time. But that still doesn't mean like the guy doesn't do things on the floor that are somewhat valuable. I'm a little bit lower on the handle and even the passing. I do think the passing is probably better than he showed at Duke. His decision making really was terrible. All the charges attacking closeouts. You wish yeah. that he would show more consistency, but he did show, you know, a tighter dribble in a closeout attack situations where he could really unload the ball, make a simple read. That's what he's going to have to do if he plays with the Hawks. It's not like he's going to be initiating their offense. I think he can play off the ball. And if it's an egalitarian system, he's going to get a lot of touches. And he can attack closeouts and kind of play in those spaces, maybe make some simple reads. He's at least coordinated. Like, he can dribble. He's not very good at dribbling under pressure. But in certain situations, he's not going to have to do that. But for me, it's like I'm kind of working with this as, like, I think he's going to Atlanta. I don't know if that's going to happen for sure. I think there are situations, like we should mention this, that if he goes to, I don't know, like a team at Cleveland, for example, that doesn't have the infrastructure yet – that's when I would worry about him is when he has to start pressing as an on-ball creator because I think that's probably where I'm a little bit lower on him than you are as far as his general playmaking acumen, especially if he's forced into more of a, not really necessarily a primary role, but like an adjacent to the primary. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, definitely a guy that like I want grabbing and going more than like playing secondary yes. creator in the half court. Yes, 100%. And that's what he'll do, again, on the Hawks. I mean, you're playing off of Herder, you're playing off of Trey. Just fill a role, and less is more immediately. And that's good for him, I think. But he's still going to get touches. Maybe he's more motivated because the ball's swinging more. He's not playing in Duke's really cramped system where he's the only guy getting guarded on the perimeter off the ball. So I just think that there, there is – I don't know if there's like a ton of upside. I like him more for like his – 
floor and his meeting outcome in this class, I don't really see him being, I don't really know how he becomes a star. Like, I don't really see that with him at all, just from an athlete standpoint, unless he's like some crazy shooter. And I'm not that high in the shooting. I think he's going to be a good shooter, not a great one. If he was that, then I'd be higher on him in this class. But I think he's going to be really solid. And in this class, like if you're getting a really solid wing in the eight to nine range, I think that's that that's a winning formula. Yeah, the guy I keep coming back to with him, and he's very different because Rudy Gay was very explosive athletically, and I think yes. was probably a little bit less, um, I'm not going to go there, but um, was probably a little bit less skilled maybe than Cam, but a better athlete. But I, I come back to Rudy Gay in terms of like overall impact for this for Cam Reddish. Like I, I feel like, you know, Rudy Gay, you look back on that draft, what was it, 2011, 2010? something like that, 2009, whatever draft it is. I looked it up like, <laughs> you know, four months ago or whatever. But Rudy Gay was like, you know, a very solid top 10 guy in his draft class by wind shares, by whatever, whatever you want to do. 2006. 2006? Was he really? Yeah. Because he was traded for Battier, wasn't he? Fuck. Rudy I, I, Gay has I remember, been yeah. in the... That dude has been in the league for a minute. <laughs> and I, I was going to say, off. when you said 2010, I was like, no way. That's got to be before that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, but Rudy Gay, uh, you know, he's very solidly in the top 10 of that class, right? Uh, and I think that that's going to be more what you see from Cam Reddish, a guy that's very useful, a guy that plays in the NBA for a long, long time, is a very useful player. Um, and the team that figures out how to win around him, I will be very happy with. Um because I think that you can win around Cam Reddish. It's just figuring it out and making it work with other skill players around him. Yeah, and if you traded in Rudy Gay's individual one-on-one shot making, you know, on pull-ups, Cam has those flashes where he'll have like those step-back shots that are really impressive, and that's why I think the guys who watch more of the highlights are probably higher on Reddish because you don't see the consistency. You just see his talent, and there's definitely talent there. Right. But if you trade in Rudy Gay's shot making and his shot attempts his ball stopping for a guy who shoots volume threes. And I'm higher on Reddish's defense. Maybe not like he's not as strong in that respect, although I think he's going to add strength to his frame, good frame. But I like him more off the ball. I think he's more aware than he gets credit for off the ball. And if he tries, I think he can be a better defensive player than Rudy Gay. And so you're trading off some of the the minuses with him for pluses in the modern game, mostly volume threes and then that team defense quality. Let's talk about Goga. Let's Goga do it. Mitazzi. I, I, I still don't know if it's Goga or Goja or however the fuck it's Goga. his name. It's Goga. We're official on this? Yes. I watched a couple of videos, interviews. I finally did that just because I was like, I'm being a fucking moron. I don't know how to say this, even though I've been saying Goga, luckily. So uh, I watched some Draft Express videos. It's Goga. So, like, I have watched, like, him play a lot. Like, I've probably watched... 20 of his games over the course of the last two years, 25 of his games, something like that. Like, it, and they never say his first name, you know? So, like, yes. I, I don't know. I know it's Bitadzi, but it's, you know, it's good to know that it's Goga. Uh, Goga is a six foot 11 to seven foot, somewhere in that range. We don't have an official measurement on him. Seven foot four wingspan, uh, just rim protecting, pick and roll, dominant offensively big man. And I think he's going to step into the NBA and be a useful player basically from day one because of how productive he was in Europe and because of the polish on his game. Yeah, 100%. I think he's one of the most NBA-ready players in the class. To me, he's one of the safest picks in the class as far as getting value. I don't think he has the upside, but I think he has outcomes where he's a quality starter at that position in the NBA who does valuable things at that position mostly offensively with his ability to pick and pop space the floor and then 
operate in the short roll, operate on dives and like mini dives and passing out. I don't know about his decision making overall, but he at least shows the coordination to put the ball on the floor a little bit and then make a kick out read. I think that's valuable. So I'm actually not sure that he's a great passer. We'll get to that in a minute. But in terms of the pick and roll stuff, what he does really well is he is just such a diverse weapon. In the pick and roll, he can pick and pop. He can actually roll all the way to the basket, can finish above the rim, um, has good touch whenever he doesn't finish above the rim. He can roll into a post up and get a smaller guy just like pinned up against his back and just in a place where it's impossible for him to defend Goga. Um, Can roll into the short roll area really, really well, finds the soft spot and can put the ball ball on the ground for one or two dribbles and get to the basket and finish. Um, Also, just a very good screen setter. He is one of the better teenage screen setters I have ever seen play basketball and I'm not exaggerating when I say that like he has all of those little like illegal Andrew Bogut tricks that are gonna drive NBA defenders fucking crazy in year one yeah the the versatility of his screen setting like his ability to take an extra step I've noticed the technique and the willingness he's not like the most bone crunching screener but he's more like it's more tactical approach that he takes that he, he will back up and like actually get a piece of you and a lot of guys just they just want to slip or they just want to set like this weak ass screen and dive like he's at least making sure even if it's not the most physical screen at times he will at least get a piece of the guy and i, I think that's big or he'll he can flip screens he can do like the little ass yep. out like feet set screen like it's he's we just talked for a minute and a half about this dude's screen setting like that's how good he is at setting <laughs> screens it's fucking ridiculous um the passing out of screens, I think he misses a shit ton of reads and goes for like contested shots around the basket. Um, he's He makes very few cross-corner kicks. He makes very few um, like kickouts to the wing. If he's going to kick it back, it's going to be back out to like his guard in a dribble handoff after like an escape dribble or something like that. Uh, it's not that he's like a turnover-prone player. It's not like he's making bad decisions. I just think that he misses reads pretty regularly. And there are differing opinions on how capable players are of developing that skill. Like Clint Capella couldn't do shit like that coming into the NBA. Clint Capella is now pretty good at hitting that cross corner kick. He's pretty good hitting that little cross wing kick once he stops and sets his feet and surveys the floor. So I think there are differing opinions on this. Like I, I would understand either way if you feel positively or negatively about his passing. Yeah, I think I'm a little more optimistic. Not like he's a great passer by any means, but I've seen him make decisions. And I think that's the difference. Like Capella learned how to anticipate where the coverages were coming from. Houston's pretty straightforward as far as their sets. I think that helps him a lot as far as not necessarily have to diagnose quickly where actions are coming from, right? Goga, I've seen him kind of cycle through options before. Like, and I haven't seen as much tape as some other people. I've seen enough, but I've seen him actually like anticipate the coverage and then look at different options in the same play and and cycle through guys so that is promising to me that means he's making a choice he's reading the defense on the fly and he's not just throwing the ball out to a place that's not open so i can't really speak to him being a high level passer i don't think he is from what i've seen but i think he's capable and i think the foundation is strong enough to where he has like a little bit of feel at least in that area to improve upon defensively uh i do have questions about him as a pick and roll defender, I think he's a really smart like drop defender. I think he's very aware of what's happening on the backside. He's very aware of what's happening around him. I do worry about the feet in space a little bit. Like I am not 100% convinced that he's going to be a great space defender. Um, but he is to me like everyone talks about Jackson Hayes as being this like elite level rim protector. To me, 
Goga is the best rim protector in the draft. His timing is exceptional. He has the size and frame and length to actually do it at the next level. And like Brandon Clark, uh, he is just a monster protecting the basket. And he tries to block everything. Yeah, I think his timing and like drop coverage, his understanding of positioning ball and man in pick and roll is pretty advanced for his age. I think he's ahead of Jackson there. Jackson's, of course, a better leaper. Goga's not a very good leaper. If he was, he'd be really he, he can get enough with his reach to get the balls, but he's not a dynamic jumper. If he was, that would be really intriguing. So he doesn't have Hayes' range, his closeout as far as getting back to blocks. He doesn't have that kind of speed. He has to win more on understanding IQ, anticipation, and then just utilizing his strength and his reach. And I think he's pretty good at that. Yeah, I agree. Honestly, his game is like kind of simple. I don't know. Like, do we need to spend more time on him? You have him at six. You said earlier, Uh, I have him at eight. I think, like, we might be two of the highest people on him in this draft, right? But just say, again, you noted about the space defense. Um, I'm not sold on his change of direction ability as far as when you get him changing side to side. I think he's underrated in, like, a straight line sliding. He's, he can hold up okay there. When you get him coming out towards the perimeter, I think that's where he struggles, to change direction once he's running north-south and then having to run backwards like that. I, I've just seen some balance issues with him, so... He's going to have to be really good at angles, I think, to, to hang. I don't see him switching out and containing, you know, dynamic perimeter creators. I think pretty much everybody's in this. So let's uh, move on. Let's go Early to number days. seven. The change of direction stuff that kills him. So let's move on. Let's go to number seven. Um, it's Kobe White. Does where? So you've a, where is your tier basically? Where is your tier line? So I'm at like number one very clearly. Two and three very clearly, and then four, five, six for me is a tier. So I have Kobe as the start of like a fourth tier for me. Where, where are you at in terms of breaking these out? Yeah, so I have Zion, of course, tier one. My tier two is John Morant, Brandon Clark, Jarrett Culver, RJ Barrett, those four. And then I have a tier from six to 22-ish range. Kobe, I just put all of the kind of combo guard shooters together. So I have him right next to Darius Garland and actually right next to Tyler Hero as well. So I do I would prefer Garland, um, especially for trade value, but I have them similarly grouped. So with Kobe White, you're looking at a guy that has an elite for a guard mix of size and speed. He is exceptionally fast in the open floor, has a great first step, uh, is good size, switching across multiple different position types, was much better better defensively than what I anticipated this year. On offense, his pull-up game is streaky, but I believe that it will be good long-term. Like, you cannot go under screens on him. Like, he will hit you if you do that. Um, you can't play, like, straight drop coverage. He'll hit you on that. But the thing that hand- that scares me is the live dribble game. Uh, I'm not sure that he has as strong a live dribble game as some of the other elite guards in this class. Definitely not as strong as Darius Garland as far as his handling ability, the agility with the ball, the quickness, all of the technique you don't really see with Kobe. It looks weird when he dribbles just because, again, the short arms, longer torso. He doesn't always dip low with the ball. He can split pick and roll, but, again, it's a higher dribble. I think he's going to have to work on that. There's more space in the NBA, but there's also more length and there's more speed. So you might think an opening's open in a pick and roll, but somebody's just going to reach out and take the ball. So he's got to work on that. 
I do think the transition push is probably his best single quality. His aggressiveness and really yep. flying up and down the floor. That is that's a beneficial skill to have in the NBA. It's something I've underrated in the past. Um, of course, he's not like De'Aaron Fox, but like that changes the culture. If you can really just grab the ball and just push it down the other team's throat, he's really good at that. So, yeah, what I will say, though, is this. Like uh, Jackson Frank, uh, that's his name, right? Yes. Uh, so Jackson tweeted out a stat earlier today about uh, Kobe White being 67%. Uh, around the basket while, uh, what was it, only having 17% of his shots around the basket being assisted. And, like, I do think Kobe's a good finisher, and I think that the point, like, he was making was reasonable. Um, You know, I'm not, like, calling him out or anything. But I I do think that a big reason why that number, and this is shown in the half-court percentages, a big reason why that number is so high is because of that transition push. He is trying to run it down the other team's throat, trying to uh, get out on the break as much as possible. And it's a good quality to have. But like around the basket in half court settings this year, he was only at like 60 percent. Right. So it's just a it's a different kind of guy uh, in the half court game. And he didn't get to the rim as much in the half court. I mean, if you single that out and look at his. So I think that's kind of some of my issues with him as far as. The length extension at the rim, he doesn't have that as a finisher. He's not very explosive. Uh, He is aggressive trying to take contact at times, but he's not just going to explode through bodies at the rim. I think he's going to have to build in a floater game, try to decelerate a little bit better in those situations and get a more holistic finishing package. I agree with you on the shooting. Well, real quick, I want to bring up the uh, volume number. So you mentioned the fact that he doesn't get to the rim a lot in half court. I mean, he only took 63 shots in half-court yes. settings at the basket this season. That is, what, probably under two per game, right? Given the fact that they played, yeah, they played 35 games this year. So he was at like 1.7 a game. That's like minuscule in terms of what a lead guard at the college level should be doing, especially one as fast as Kobe. And I think it goes to show just how, I don't want to say like, bad but it is a little bit questionable in terms of his live dribble game and ability to get past defenders in the half court and that number is also encompassing assisted baskets as well it's not just self-created so he's not getting there very often off the dribble by himself as far as like in a pick and roll getting to the rim that's that's definitely i think it's worth mentioning i like to to view finishing and like evaluate the different avenues and the ways he can win not very explosive not great length extension has to work on the deceleration the touch game around the rim it's possible i'm not hugely confident in though i I don't think that finishing number like you've noted is representative really of his full ability like in the nba if you project him he's not going to be anywhere that caliber of finisher obviously yeah i agree um the thing that you know you mentioned We've talked about the live dribble game, and it's something that you mentioned on the last podcast that I thought was pretty insightful. Um, the live dribble game, just mechanically think about his body and think about like other lead guards across the NBA, right? Um, he is six foot five with like a six foot five wingspan. I think it might even be like a little bit of a negative wingspan. And that lends itself to a high dribble. He has to get like exceptional bend in his knees. To be able yes. to get the kind of like uh, you know tight handle, low to the ground handle that can be like a wicked that lends itself to like a wicked quick crossover um, that people will have. So I just look at it and I'm like, 
mechanically this doesn't totally work from a physical perspective. So I just wonder uh, how fixable it is. Like, how much can he improve that live dribble game? Yeah, it's really fascinating. We have seen flashes of him getting low with the ball in traffic, so I think it's possible, but it's not consistent, and it's definitely something he has to work on. You see a lot of his dribble moves are set up to get to his step back, which he's excellent at, the footwork, the amount of ground he can cover for a guard, and the comfortability he has on those shots already I think is pretty legitimate. And I just see a lot of his creation game, his live dribble game. You know, Garland's more of a forward momentum pull-up shooter. Kobe likes to you know, get to that step back a lot. He's not getting to the rim as much as far as utilizing those driving lanes. He's very, he, he can improv a little bit and transition. I want to see him function more in a half court setting and say, hey, if you're going to initiate this set, can you get to the rim? Can you make decisions? Can you see the floor? That's another thing is his, he improved as a passer this year. He's coming out of high school more as a dominant scorer at, at that level. So he's making the transition to point guard. We didn't see a lot of high-level reads, so I think that just kind of builds into the overall point guard package. I don't think I, I saw him make one single skip pass read in pick and roll this year, so that's kind of telling to me. Yeah, I mean, it was just a simple role for him this year as the lead guard. Like, I feel like they yes. simplified that offense as much as they possibly could, and that's not a bad thing. Like, he was highly successful in it, and I think he's deserving of being picked in the top ten, but... This is not like a guy, like to me, he is a very clear tier below Darius Garland. Um, okay. Any team that is trying to trade up for a point guard, they should be focusing on Darius first, then trying to like decide on, uh, you know, is Kobe worth it or not? I would definitely take Garland over him. And I would, if I was going to use a pick on a point guard in this class of the top five, I think Garland's going to carry his value more. His, the perception of him is just incredibly strong and it's fair to be high on him some people i really respect are i'm a little bit more skeptical but i think garland is definitely the choice if you have to pick a point guard-esque player more of a combo scoring guard in the top five i just want to say one more th- quick thing about kobe's defense i don't necessarily think his size is a plus like it's it's good that he's not like 5'11 or six foot but he's not like a 6'5 guard like, if you compare him right. to, like, D'Anthony Melton, who's 6'3", D'Anthony Melton plays like he's, like, 6'7 or 6'8". Kobe White plays like he's 6'3 and a half. So I don't really think that size, as far as strength, um, he tries incredibly hard. That's what I like about him, is you he cares on the defensive end, and that's important for a point guard if you're not incredibly athletic, if you're not, all, like, really strong with length. But he just can't contest some of these shots, man. Like, that length is huge to the point guard position as well. Like, some of these switch outs, he has no chance against these pull-up point guards, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Let's move on. Let's go to number six, which is where I have Darius Garland. Uh, It's not (laughs) that I'm, like, lower on Darius. I think he's a very real, legit prospect. I think he's awesome, actually. I just have some concerns about two aspects of his game that make me wonder how amenable he will be to winning basketball uh, early on. Hit me. So... First and foremost, he's not like a super elite level creator, facilitator for his teammates. It's all, he wants to get to his pull up. He wants to uh, be able to be a scorer, right? It's not that he's like, he's not a selfish player, but that's just like how he's wired, right? He's wired as a scorer. Second, and you can get away with that. That's totally fine. Like you can be a scoring point guard in the league. Damian Lillard, Kyrie Irving, etc. Like I think Darius is probably like a slight level below those guys, but it's not like a 
game-changing problem for him, right? The second thing, and there are actually three things. The second thing is defensively, he's a mess. <laughs> like, I think he's Lou Williams defensively. Um, Lou tries and gives effort, and, like, sometimes just the length helps, but um, he's a bad defender. Like, I think that that's Darius, basically. And number three, his finishing, like, people have tried to compare him to, like, Kyrie Irving in regard to his overall offensive package because of the balance, because of the ability to knock down pull-ups. He's not that because he doesn't have the ability to have those, like, length extension finishes that Kyrie has, those uh, just English off-the-glass finishes. He doesn't have a left hand, really, to finish with. Like, he's, he's, those are the concerns. It's not like he is a awful finisher he's not the elite finisher that Kyrie is oh I definitely not he doesn't have that that kind of I don't think he's that kind of athlete like Kyrie's just way different as far as how he moves on the floor to me Garland's like he's Trey Young-esque in how I think he's gonna win as a scorer by that I mean his pull-up range everybody knows about the 30-foot range the quick release that forward momentum uh balance that he has I think that's there um he wins a lot on step backs he's not going to be someone who Hits fadeaways. Kyrie's shot is one of the most versatile shots in the NBA. Same with Dame Lillard. Both those guys, higher release points, can shoot with backward momentum. They could do that in college. Garland can't do that. Like, he looks unnatural when he's fading away. I don't know about his three-level scoring ability because he doesn't create space that way. It's all face-up, on his toes, crossovers, deceptive moves. Can get to a step back, quick release. I think he's going to be okay there. I'm worried about the finishing as well, and I think he's going to have to win like Trey does with those with those runners. And he has good touch. I don't know if he has incredible touch. Like, it's pretty good. I feel relatively confident he's going to be an okay touch shooter and touch floater guy. But not, like you noted, not someone who's going to, like, adjust and contort with the ball. He can do that on, like, a closeout setting when he has, like, momentum. But in traffic, I worry a little about about his strength level, and he's not the downhill athlete that someone like Damian Lillard is. Like, Lillard can just hit the gas. He's incredibly fast, and he's got better pop-off one. Like, Lillard's a world-class athlete. You look at his combine numbers, everything. Like, he's a legitimately great athlete, and I don't think Garland's that level of athlete. I think he's a tier below that. Um, as far as east-west burst, he's very, very good. You can, you can probably even call him elite there. As far as, like, straight-line speed, especially vertical pop at the rim, I don't think he's there. So people are going to think of this negatively when I say this about Darius Garland, and I genuinely do not mean it negatively. Uh, I think this guy is, like was a borderline all-star this year and had like a real uh, case for it uh, and like had an exceptional year in general. I really think that Darius might be like just like next Lou Williams. And I think that like it took Lou some time to figure out how to do what he does and be successful at it. Uh, I don't think it'll take Darius as long as it took Lou to be successful. And I think that Darius will be like somewhere in that. Like I would say Lou was a top 10 offensive guard this year. And I think that that's Darius's ceiling. I think that that is what, that's kind of what his game will look like to me, I guess. God, that's a hard road, though, man. I mean, Lou is so good at, like, all the little bullshit foul drawing. He sells fouls so... Like, he has, like, that Trey Young ability. Trey's really good at this. I have not seen that from Garland as far as that understanding. All of these touch difficult shots, but it's mostly the foul drawing. That's where Lou wins in, like, the intermediate area. For me, I view him more like Trey. Like, he's going to win deep threes. He's going to win step-back threes. And then when he gets by and pick and roll, he can split 
I mean, obviously he's nowhere near the passer that Trey is, but when he can get into the, the lane, I see him more as like a touch shot guy than I do like an explosive finisher. So that's just kind of, I don't know what that player looks like. I look in the league right now. I'm not sure if there is exactly like a Darius Garland. See, I agree with you. And I, I think that like, that's why I'm like, that's why I kind of say Lou, like I understand that he's not like exactly like Lou, but yeah, yeah, yeah. like in terms of impact, like, low-end defensive guard who is a high-end offensive creator that is score first who can make some interesting passes you know what I mean um I think Darius has the right idea in terms of going about in terms of mindset uh how to get better and I think he will pick up like he watches so much tape and like tries to pick up these little tricks of the trade like I would implore him to watch Lou Williams tape because I think he would be able to pick up some of that like little uh those little like tricks that Lou has yeah, I mean, if he can do that, I get the conceptual idea that you're painting. Um, I'm very curious. He's obviously a great kid, and he's known as being like a really hard worker. He has NBA bloodlines, so I think he's going to be very alluring. And we already see this play out in the draft as far as teams, you know, attempting to trade up for him. So I get it. I, again, I just think for me, he's more of like a guard on a team that's like Jamal Murray. He's not the same player. He's way shiftier sure. than Murray as Murray's bigger. Yep. But like that kind of scoring guard, right? And like he's going to have to play next to – I don't think he's like an engine of an offense. I think he's more of like a piece that you put next to an engine of an offense. And I'm worried that he's going to be treated like the engine, if, if that makes sense. No, I think that's totally reasonable. And I think that's kind of – I think we're kind of on the same page with Darius Garland at the end of the day. Like kind of a guy that is – just slightly like some people are pegging him as like the next Dame Lillard, the next Kyrie. Um, we just see him as like that level below that, you know? Yeah. I'm definitely a level, at least one level below, maybe two. I'm a little bit more skeptical than you are, but I think we're in the general confines of the same idea of what kind of player he is. Let's go to number five. Jared Culver is your guy. We've been high on Jared Culver on this podcast all year. We we've have. Been high on, we've been high on everyone left on this podcast all year. I'm excited. Like, I, this draft does not <laughs> suck. Can we be clear about that? Like, this draft is not a bad draft. Uh, it's not terrible. I, I don't think it's good. It's definitely not good. But it might not be historically bad. I mean, any draft with Zion in it can't be bad, right? Because you always judge drafts historically by your best players in it, for the most part. That's what people care about. That's why you remember, you know, the star draft 96, 2003. So Zion's going to help, but I don't know, man. This is a range. I think you're a little bit higher in guys like RJ than me. I still like him, but I think that's kind of why there's a little bit of a disconnect as far as value here. But but proceed. Yeah, and, like, look, I don't love the range from what seven through 20 realistically like i'm lower on that range than i think everyone else is uh but i really like the top six guys and i love the depth in this class and i think that like guys are going to be developed to the point where this is not a disaster draft when we look back at it i think it's going to be like a totally average draft that's definitely fair i think it probably is more average than complete disaster but i'm in I'm like in between those two things. It's between very not good and average more than it is between average and very good. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, let's go on ahead. Let's talk about Jarrett Culver. So Culver, I don't think Culver is a guy that would be like considered a potential number four overall pick in a normal draft, but he would definitely be a top like eight guy, I think. Uh, six, six. He is not six foot seven or six foot eight. Like... <laughs> Can we just say that uh, he is not that tall? He is like six six, between six six and six seven. 
He is kind of skinny, still developing into his frame, has good length, good shoulders. He's going to put on, uh, I think, some pretty good weight and be in, uh, be able to take physical contact and deal with all that. Incredibly hard worker. Like, this dude is in the gym consistently. You can't pull him out of the gym. And I think that's why teams are looking at him and thinking his growth trajectory is going to continue to be uh, positive. In terms of his game, the difference between last year and this year is that he can get to his pull-up game. He has become a guy that can actually like take pull-up jump shots and you feel confident about the ball going in at a reasonably efficient level. Uh, the key for him is going to be just getting a little bit better at everything that he can because he's not a like explosive like crazy athlete uh he's a guy that's going to get by based off of fluidity and based off of uh just hard work and having a skill level that's a little bit better than everyone so he needs to get a little bit better as a jump shooter he needs to get a little bit better in terms of handle uh needs to get a little bit better as a decision maker because he got a little turnover prone at times this year but i think that he will do that and i think that I would feel pretty good about taking him in this draft in the top five. Yeah, in this draft, it's pretty impossible to come up with, you know, him outside of the top five. It's just really unrealistic when you look at what the league is right now. It's a dribble, pass, shoot league, and he can definitely dribble and pass. He's not a high-level ball handler, but he's good enough. As a wing, he's definitely qualifies. He's an excellent passer, incredible decision-making. I think, well, I should say incredible. Very good decision-making. I, right. I think he can... <laughs> It can be great decision-making, I think, in the right role. I think you have to contextualize and say Agreed. he was playing outside the confines of himself his sophomore year. His freshman year, playing off of Keenan Evans, playing off of Zaire Smith, you saw more of like a you know multiple ball handler system, right? And that's what I think he is. I, go ahead. So here's, here's my question. Sure. Did he actually play off of Zaire Smith last year? <laughs> that's fair. I mean, like he, he wasn't like, considered the same level prospect. <laughs> Zaire was like Sean Marion on that team. He was like the four. Right. So, yeah. You, Definitely off Keenan Evans, though. By the way, good comp I got earlier today from someone who I know listens to the podcast, so I don't want to blow up that guy's spot, but shout out to him. Someone gave me the Sean Marion comparison for Brandon Clark, and I kind of dig it a lot. Oh, I've heard that before, and it got me real excited, but Sean Marion's another one of those guys that had like a seven, three and a half wingspan. Like, he was a total freak show as far as yeah, that goes. Fair. So, yeah, I, I love it, though. I mean, obviously, I love it, but... Uh, Continue, though, uh, on Jarrett. I'm sorry. Adding, and he's more of a... <laughs> no, it's good. I just... Like, Culver's one of the best passers in the draft. And it's kind of weird with this class because some of the combo guards aren't very good passers. Culver's a way better passer than Garland and Kobe White, in my opinion. Not as good as, of course, John Morant. But his decision-making, I think, is really good in the right role. Like, he can make skip pass reads. He's very unselfish. He makes the right play consistently. Good touch on his passes. So I think that's really what it starts with him, is he really knows how to play basketball. He can attack a closeout. I think he's going to look much more athletic attacking gaps in the NBA. And people always say, like, yeah, he's going to look more athletic with NBA space. I think a lot of the times last year, Culver got the ball at a standstill off like a live dribble game, and his first step is not very good. But when he's when he's catching and going, when he comes off a dribble handoff, I think he's much more effective. That's a really good point, and I think that that is a interesting concept in regard to schematic fit because. Uh, I am worried that, like, a team that drafts him is going to put him next to a point guard that likes to dominate the ball and is not going to get him going in dribble handoffs. Like, there's been a lot of question on, like, is he a good player for the Pelicans, given the fact that they have four right now. Pelicans are looking to move the pick, and at the end of the day, like, I think they're probably going to move the pick. But 
if they do keep it, I actually kind of really like Jarrett there the more I think about it because Gentry runs a ton of that dribble handoff stuff. And uh, you look at like dribble handoffs with Culver and Zion coming from the wing with like Drew Holiday next to him and like a not like Drew Holiday and Lonzo like aren't ball stoppers by any stretch. They're not like ball dominant point guards. Like those two guys and like you can run dribble handoffs and stuff. That's an awesome fit for Culver, I think. Like that'd be that'd be a really, really fun offensive scheme, I think. Oh, for sure. Schematically, as far as the egalitarian nature of the players, absolutely. I think you have to worry a little bit about shooting and spacing in that setting, but you're, you're betting on Culver shooting anyway, right? I mean, that's part of this calculus is can he make an open catch and shoot three? Can he? I don't think he's going to be a high-level movement shooter, but like you noted, he has improved on his pull-up ability. I think he has. What I like about him a lot is he's a really flexible athlete. He's got excellent ankles. You can see him change directions. He has those you know, really flexible fadeaways where he has a high release point his shot his kind of shot release angle is so high he can shoot right over the top of guys like rj he showed that ability so we'll see how much like if you're viewing him as like a lead guard primary i know everybody wants to think about that as a ceiling i think you should temper expectations i don't think he's that player but if he's part of his system and he's like a multiple ball handler guy i think he's one of the only guys in this class really that can dribble pass shoot make decisions and play defense like that's him if the shot goes so I guess that the next thing um, with Jarrett is the defense. There are very mixed thoughts on this. And I think I might be on the low end of this. He's like a huge gambler on defense. And like part of this was the Texas Tech scheme. Like they had a lot of really good positional defenders. Like Matt Mooney was exceptional off ball or on ball. And Tariq Owens was just kind of all over the place and helped. So it allowed him to gamble a little bit more than what um, – I would think is normal. And my cat is literally trying to rip into <laughs> his bag of food right now. To, uh, that's incredible. Like, get me to feed him. Um, so give me, give me uh, two seconds here after I finish this thought, but Culver, I think is the kind of defender that I don't really know what to make of him at the next level, because on the ball, I think there are some real concerns where he gets a lot of steals. He'll dig down and like try and swat the ball. He has really good hand to eye coordination. Um, yes. He has potential to be a good defense defender, but I, I don't know if he's there yet. And people, I think, ascribe like all NBA <laughs> defensive potential to him. Yeah, I don't really buy the all NBA potential. I think it's definitely a step down. I do think some of the team defense, the collapsing and the help is scheme related. Like they're, Texas Tech is all about, you know, filtering to the baseline and then everybody collapsing, taking charges and really helping and taking Fair. away the middle of the floor. So he's not playing like conventional NBA defense where they're so a lot of times they're more conservative on the weak side with shooters. So he does roam a little bit. He does lapse a little bit. I get that. But if you really want to see him defend at a high level, go watch his freshman year tape again when he was the guy that was kind of like the stopper like they put him on Trey Young I thought he did a much better job on Trey Young than someone like Herb Jones did who get who got so much fucking credit for guarding Trey when Trey really just skewered him so that's just a, that's an adjacent argument but I think the, the Herb, on can, can, we, can we take a second here and <laughs> pray to the altar oh, of Herb man. Jones <laughs> uh, that was one that I never understood like that was a wild situation that happened. Like, top 20, I was like, what are we watching? Like, defensive stopper. Like, he denied Trey a couple times the ball when he, Trey was off the ball. Like, he couldn't catch it because Herb was, like, shadowing him. It's like, cool. No NBA defense plays like that. that. So, uh, I don't know, man. That's a different argument. <laughs> it was a – that was a wild thought. Like, he's <laughs> no offensive skill. 
Uh, that's an understatement. Yes, he is no offensive skill. But uh, with Colvert, I think I'm more in the middle of you and this all NBA upside defensively. I don't think he's that, but I do think you're going to see better defense. I think he's quick. He's got good feet. He's got excellent hands. He's really good hands. Doesn't have great reach. So like some of the contests, he's not going to be able to get to some just because he has more like shooting guard measurables rather than big wing. But I think he's going to be disciplined. I think he's going to add strength. He plays bigger than his size as far as physicality. So I'm in on his defense. I think he's going to be a plus defender. I'm not sure about the degree. Do you, do you want to hear how dumb I was in the preseason? I'm looking back at my board right now. I had Herb Jones at 33. It's a big flex by you. <laughs> and like never, I never even believed it. Like, I feel like I just listened <laughs> to NBA people and were like, they were like, oh yeah, Herb Jones. Like we think he has like a high upside. Like what the fuck was I doing? <laughs> that's a, i don't listen to nba people so that's kind of <laughs> that's a different situation but this is, uh this is what i yeah. like i need to very clearly like readjust my brain somehow what what are some we'll do that at the end here look at some of my like ridiculously <laughs> bad thoughts from the beginning of the year i've gotten a lot people like don't recognize i guess that like i was doing big boards from like the time i was like 22 or 23 right like, I have some, like, shitty takes on these big boards. It's, like, fun to go back and look at. I get some of them oh, right, yeah. but, like, like, I'm getting better at this as I go on, basically, is the point. And I think I've gotten a lot better even throughout this year in doing this. Yeah, I can definitely mirror that. I said some wild shit in 2016, especially. So that was a really tough look for myself. But back to Culver, my last point. Again, dribble pass shoot. I like his decision-making probably more than a lot of people. Um, do, wait, I have a question for you. Who do you yeah. think is the better passer slash decision maker, Jarrett Culver, R.J. Barrett? Decision maker in regard to like shot selection and stuff is definitely Jarrett. Better vision, more passes in the toolbox, R.J. Interesting. See, I think it's both. I think Jarrett is both. Um, and I think it's pretty convincing. Like, I think R.J. is a very good passer, but I think Culver for his role and his wing role is actually pretty exceptional. I think they're both really – like, I think they're both – like 80th percentile or higher passers for wings. Honestly, I would say RJ is like a 90th percentile or higher passer when he wants to Interesting. in terms of like vision. That dude is awesome at seeing over the defense and making those. He, he like his passes more come from like high vantage points, whereas Jarrett's more come from like the chest vantage point. Right. So maybe I'm like, I feel like just because of that, maybe I'm thinking like, Oh yeah. Like RJ like sees over the defense because he's like throwing these like higher like balls. <laughs> But, like, maybe that's, like, an optical illusion in terms of scouting. But, like, I really think that um, when it comes to RJ, he really is, like, an exceptional – he sees the floor really, really well and makes passes at an extremely high level when he wants to. I mean, there's a reason that he had, like, multiple double-digit assist games this year. Like, he he really does see the floor whenever his mind is set on passing the ball. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to that when we cover RJ. But do you have any more thoughts on Culver? I would just say he's an underrated athlete functionally. It's going to look a little bit better than a lot of people give him credit for. The divergence of opinions with him with the NBA guys has been absolutely fucking hilarious. Like, you'll get some guys that are like, this guy's not any good. And then you have some guys like, this guy's can be the best player in the draft. This guy's slow. He's fast. Like, he's a good ball handler. He's a bad ball handler. It's like the most variance I think I've ever seen with a prospect. I don't see. I don't think I have like a ton of variance with him. Most NBA guys just think, yeah, he's fine. Uh, I hope. Like, I felt like he's like fallen into a nice little like. I haven't found anyone who thinks he's like exceptional. You know what I mean? Like, I think most people think he's going to be a solid starter at the next level. But like, yeah, the question is like, how far of a difference in between solid starter? Like, the difference between him and like 
Like, the variance in him and the variance that people have in, like, Grant Williams is fucking wild. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it, I should have clarified. I didn't mean NBA guys. I meant, like, more like NBA media. Like, the people that watch oh, him in the media. Okay. So, so the NBA, I'm in alignment with them. I see more of what you're saying right now. I'm probably a little bit higher in Culver, but not, like, I, I, I don't understand why he's so divisive. Like, he's just Jared Culver. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, let's move on. Let's go to four. DeAndre Hunter. I am extremely high on DeAndre Hunter because DeAndre is a guy that I think is just on a very positive growth trajectory, right? Um, okay. He's gotten better, basically, from the moment. So he had, what was it? Might have been like a broken wrist, I want to say. Broken arm? I forget. In high school. Uh, but since then, since from that point forward, he's gotten considerably better every single year. Like, his redshirt year, you talk to the people in Virginia, he got so much better throughout the course of that year. You could see the growth process throughout his freshman year at Virginia and how much more confident he got later in that season. This year, he got better and better and better to the point where he, uh, you know, flexed in the national title game, uh, essentially dominating. And I don't remember if he won MOP or not, but he should have won MOP or most outstanding player, in my opinion. Um, So I just look at him as a guy that, even though he's 21, going to be 22 early next season, he still has upside. Like, I think that we often just, like, associate guys that are older without having upside. I still think he has some upside as a ball handler. He can tighten that up. And once he does, and once he quickens up the shot and tightens up the ball handling, I think he is going to be a really solid, uh, really good, uh, even, offensive player. We already know what he is defensively. He's a stud on defense. He is uh, exceptional on the ball on defense. And I just think that the offensive game is going to come along. I think he's going to be a 37% three-point shooter at some point that can get to, like, medium volume. Uh, I think he's going to be a guy who can attack closeouts and be an advantage scorer. Like, look, he might not be more than, like, 16 points a game, but if you're getting 16 points a game, super high-level defense, and solid three-point shooting, I think that's a top 50 player in the NBA, right? And that's basically what I think DeAndre Hunter is. Yeah, you're definitely higher than me. I agree with the shooting. I, he's got to speed up his release. Everybody's going to quote the Zion play, and that was a lot of Zion just being ridiculous. But he has to prepare for shots better. I think he's got to catch on the hop more in rhythm, expedite that. I think that's going to be possible. He's got a higher release point. I think he's going to be fine as a catch-and-shoot guy. I like a little bit of the yes. mid-post game. I like the fact that if you put a smaller guard on him, I think he can actually just shoot over the top, bully him a little bit. That's important. If you're just... A three and D guy who can't do that. Um, got teams can just hide their, you know, their worst offensive or worst defensive player on you. I think Hunter can at least make that more difficult. I'm not saying he's going to be great at taking advantage of those, but I think he's capable. Um, so I think there's a little bit more there. I agree with you on the closeouts. We see the bounce more in space. Like he had that close attack against Cam Reddish, dunked in traffic off of one. He's not an explosive athlete in traffic especially when he doesn't have that momentum. But I think he's going to be good in NBA space attacking in that way. So to me, he's more of like a tertiary that brings a little bit more creation to that role. So, yeah, I guess they're like we're kind of saying similar things, I guess. Right. Like I might be a little bit higher on like I don't think he's going to be like some high level pull up shooter. Right. Um, but I think that he can do what you're saying that you think he's going to do in average like you know 14 to 17 points a game shoot reasonable volume from three and be like a super high level defender you know what i mean 
Yeah, I'm with you on the offensive stuff. Outside, I think our only disagreement here is with his handle and how much that can improve. I just don't know if he's a fluid enough athlete. He's very rigid when he dribbles and just how he moves in general. Like, he's not a very fluid. He's not like Cam Reddish. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's way clunkier. And I don't know how much that's going to improve. He can shoot off the dribble a little bit. He's shown that. He's also shown a little bit of shooting off movement as far as, like, pin downs. A lot of that was in his freshman year. Um, so there might be some upside there. But I just don't know if I buy him enough as, like, a coordinated athlete. Like, he moves incredibly well laterally on defense. We'll get to that. But as far as, like, just a dynamic not, – not even a dynamic score, but, like, a secondary creator. Like, he's not as fluid with the ball as someone like Jared Culver. Like, there's a really big difference there to me. I agree with you. I, I think there is a difference in terms of, like – Jarrett can get to his pull-up game, and Jarrett can, like, yes. you know, make super high-level reads passing the ball, right? DeAndre is a smart offensive player who makes the right reads and is going to keep the ball moving and will probably average, like, a couple assists a game. Like, Jarrett might average five assists a game a season. You know what I mean? Yes. DeAndre is very much, like, he'll he's unselfish. He'll make the right play in the system, especially when the play is in front of him. Not a very creative passer like, like Culver. I think, for me... DeAndre is more of like a fourth option at best on offense, but he can fill that tertiary role well. I don't think he's like, not as far as scoring, but like as far as who you want, like running the offense through. You know what I mean? He's more of a guy who takes advantage playing off of better players. That's kind of how I see him. So people have compared him to Kawhi Leonard, right? Like that's the popular comparison. Especially after they just won the title, right? Like the difference between him and Kawhi Leonard is movement skills. Right. Like Kawhi obviously got a lot better at shooting to the point where, uh, you know, he was not really resembling anything that he was at San Diego State as a shooter. Having said that, DeAndre just is a little bit more robotic with ball in hand. And I don't think he can create shots as well as Kawhi has ever shown the ability to create shots, even in college. Um, I think he's more of like a, you know, he might be able to take like a one or two dribble pull up, but he's not going to be like a contested shot maker that knocks them down at fucking Jordan levels, right? (laughs) Because that's a ridiculous level to reach, right? Like, I I guess we can't rule it out, but like it's a (laughs) 0.01% chance of it happening, right? Because it's a 0.01% chance of it happening for anyone. Um, I mean, yeah. You know what I mean, though? Like, I think that's like worth bringing up at least. He's not Kawhi. Um, But I think he is going to be like a really, really good player. And I think that that is all an exceptionally valuable skill set while also having, I think he is like a legit all NBA potential defender. Okay. So first one note about Kawhi, he is nowhere near the level of ball handler. If you go back and watch Kawhi in college, like his handle, like he has real like Twitch, like he can cross you over. I've seen him literally cross over two defenders. They both fell down and like his step back. Like Kawhi's just on a different platform of athlete and handle defensively. I don't see that outcome. I see him as more like very good at what he does well. And what he does well is he's incredibly disciplined and technical on the ball. Incredible technical defender as far as closeouts, as far as containing guys on switches. I don't think he's a playmaker. And I know some of that's the pack line. You'll probably address that, I'm guessing. But uh, I don't know if I see the defensive impact. Like, for me, he's not someone who you say, okay, that's the worst player on the other team. Guard him and play help defense and ruin the other team's offense. Like, that's not him. He's like, go guard Paul George for 35 minutes. And I don't know if you can and shut him down, but he's at least going to try. He has a 7-2 wingspan. He has the movement skills to stick with him. That's more of what I see. 
Yeah, I don't agree. I think he's strong enough, and I think his feet are quick enough to where once you get him out of the pack line, which is like a very uh, – like if you go through teams that play pack line and look at their turnover rates over the years, because of the way that the defense is so help-heavy and because of the way the defense – you just don't gamble at all within that defense um, – the turnover rates are exceptionally low in pack line defenses. Uh, they are just like run through, I want to say like Michigan States, run through um, obviously Virginia's, run through. Virginia's actually wasn't terrible this year because they were so much more athletic than what we've seen in the past, but like uh, run through their history, run through Arizona's history, run through uh, you know Xavier under Chris Mack's history. You can you can just find that this is a, this is a thing, right? So he has all of the tools to be very good. Like he's twitchy on defense. He has the length. He has the like foot fluidity. He slides his feet. Well, he has good lateral quickness. Like I just, just because he hasn't created plays in the past, I guess like, I don't see that as a situation where he's not going to create plays into the future. See, I'm not even reading overly much and do his steal percentage like a lot of people do i'm looking more at what i see on the floor he doesn't gamble on the perimeter i think that's a very overt action on his part like he's just not going to gamble for steals because he wants to stay disciplined he doesn't want to give up advantage opportunities i'm with that for me it's actually more of the blocks it's more like he'll be and this is the same issue i had with Aiton last year when people were like it's all the pack line it's all arizona system and you watch him play and there's so many times where he has a chance to challenge a shot and he doesn't and guys right. that's not the pack line that's your instincts that's how you're geared to play defense and i think that's a similar issue of course it's a different position with deandre but that's what i see from him is like i don't see the high level feel off the ball i see him as like go guard that guy and he can do a good job he's got big wing size he's got the length he's not a crazy crazy athlete as far as leaping ability as well he, he doesn't use his vertical athleticism basically at all on defense it's mostly lateral and just straight line movement skills i think he's going to be really good at that um i think his defense might end up being overrated even though i think it's going to be very good just because people tend to overrate on ball defense on the perimeter and like these big wing shutdown defenders again he's not quiet on this side of the ball either yeah i think that that's all pretty reasonable like Kawhi, he just doesn't have the <laughs> twitch that Kawhi does like he's no, exactly you can right. be an all nba defender and not be fucking Kawhi leonard on defense you know what I mean? Exactly. Which is fine. But I don't even think um, he's like, I don't think he's even Andre Roberson defensively. I don't think he's even, he's not that athletic either. He's a different kind. Like, I, I don't know who to compare him to in the league. He's kind of like Trevor Ariza S to me, but like a little bit more disciplined and like naturally good well, at understanding. I was, was going to say like, I was going to say Clay Thompson just with a longer wingspan. Okay. That's, that's actually probably even better, frankly. Yeah. Like the way that Clay like bodies you up, the way that Clay yes. can really slide his feet, the way that he, uh, you know, isn't always necessarily going to go for a steal either. Um, he's just a really, really tough physical on ball defender who, you know, again, like Clay, did Clay make all defense this year? I think he did. Right. Yeah. We had a podcast complaining about it, so that might not yeah. have been good. For <laughs> but like Clay has been a good defender for seven years yes. now or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, no question. Uh, and like could have made multiple all defense teams. Um, so yeah, like I think of him like that defensively more than anything. Yes, I'm, I'm with that description 100%. I tend to think those guys get a bit overrated by some and underrated by the analytics community as far as not understanding the value of point of attack defense. So I, I come down in the middle. I think he's going to be very good defensively. I don't see him as like an all defense guy though. Okay, that's fine. Um, let's go to number three, RJ Barrett for me. 
Uh, RJ Barrett, to me, is just a dude that is ridiculously productive, is uh, very skilled at getting to the basket. I am not as concerned about the first step as some people are. Uh, he's just super strong and super physical, and I think that once he gets into the open spaces of the NBA, he's going to continue to draw fouls at an extraordinarily high level. Um, very, very good passer. Like I said, like I'm really a believer in his passing ability. Very underrated athletically. He can like kind of bounce up and get up in a way that I think he doesn't get credit for. Shooting, I think he's going to shoot it at a reasonably efficient level as a pull-up shooter. He's not going to be like some elite level knockdown James Harden pull-up shooter. He's not going to be some elite level knockdown, you know, catch and shoot guy either. I do think he's going to get to like a league average efficiency on pull-up jumpers though. And whenever you mesh that with the ability to get to the foul line and the ability to finish at the basket, you're going to have like a reasonably efficient guy, not like a high level efficiency guy, but you know, if he was a 55 to 58 true shooting percentage guy, that wouldn't surprise me uh, on high volume. And the defense is a disaster, but we'll get to that at some point here. So (laughs) I will, uh, I I will cede the floor to you. I just want to ask you a question really quick, because this is something I might have misevaluated at lower levels. Do you remember his stride length and how he could Euro and in, in transition in bigger space? His Do you think that, that comes back? Yeah, do you think that comes back in the NBA? Because we really didn't see it that much at Duke. Like, he had some long strides. I know Schmitz included the the play where he stepped around Rui. But that's not the same as what I saw. Like, even in the Canada tour, like, he would use those big strides side to side. Because he's not that agile. Like, he's not very shifty side to side. That's probably his biggest weakness is his lack of shake. But I'm curious to see if you think that, like, that's going to come back in, like, an over and drop setting. Can he Euro the big? Yes, I think he can. Um, the reason that I think he couldn't do that this year is because, like, where did you want him to Euro into? The help defender on his left or the help defender <laughs> on his right? You know what I mean? Like, they, they just had no floor spacing whatsoever. They played a true center, Trey Jones, who was always consistently helped off of into the lane. Uh, Zion Williamson, who teams consistently helped off of into the lane. And Cam Reddish, who teams mostly respected, I would say, from three. But... It was always two help defenders, like crashing down on R.J. Barrett because there was no recourse for attacking him in that way, you know? Yeah, no, 100%. There is definitely a spacing component here. I just still expected to see more, even in the glimpses we did see. Like, as far as the lateral burst, I didn't see great agility there at all. And I, I know, like, even sometimes where there was some space, like, in transition, when he can really get in transition, he's just a total nightmare for the other team. Like, he's very, very high level in transition. I'm more concerned about in tra- a little bit more traffic, a little bit more congestion in the half court will we see more lateral bursts because he's not explosive in and out of his moves i don't really have a problem with his first step frankly i think his first step is actually pretty good i'm more like concerned about the shiftiness and when he tries to get to his pull up it's a little bit rigid at times um i don't know i I just think there's a lot of rigidity to his game like he's not a very fluid athlete he's more of like a power guy like when he gets downhill like he's a total freaking nightmare to deal with but when he's like trying to navigate spaces i don't know if i see enough of that you know lateral burst yeah it's just so hard to tell with this duke roster this duke roster was so like so talented but also so poorly constructed from an offensive perspective right so like jack white like shout out white jack but man like Dude missed like 35 threes in a row at some point this year, like as a spacer. I mean, he was a floor floor spacer that missed 35 straight threes. Um, 
it's just like I'm willing to go off of the younger tape with RJ and like the settings that I've seen him before and say like this guy's gonna be fine laterally like adjusting around guys around the basket now like is he gonna be like right to left crossover get down or let's say left to right crossover get downhill I don't think so like I don't think he can change gears like that and get like into a super super quick like downhill movement but I do think he can go like left to right right to left into a pull up Uh, I think his footwork is going to be good enough and I think he's a hard enough worker to get to that uh, to get that shot in his game yeah that's fair I I mean I'm most of the why I'm buying him is because of his work ethic where do you see how much he's jacked up he looks enormous like his neck is going to have its own twitter account soon it's incredible but um like the work ethic is there i I don't question that at all um it's more of the the high level skill we've talked about the shot making most of these perimeter players it's about pull-up shooting for a lot of them unless you can really get to the rim and i don't see rj as like this complete blow-by guy in isolation like if you can get him off a dribble handoff and he's getting into space that's when he's going to be his best in my opinion as far as an attacker so right now we talked about this again as far as his ability to make shots off the dribble if you duck under him currently from the nba line he might struggle a little bit i think he's going to figure that out in time his footwork is good enough can he get to that step back that's that's the million dollar question for me is an isolation score if he's going to be that kind of high level creator can he get to that you know one two step back that we've seen luke do at younger ages we've seen a little bit of rj try to do it with very inconsistent results if he can get that I think he can kind of be the player that a lot of people think potentially he could be. So that's where my, that's where, that's his swing skill for me. Like if he can get that shot down and he, with reasonable efficiency, he's gonna be he's gonna be good. I, I just don't know if he's gonna get there because it's a very very tough road. It is a tough road, and we should talk about the defense now because it uh, it bad, um, <laughs> it, it bad. <laughs> like I'm trying to think of like. We, we want to do the compliment sandwich here at the Game Theory Podcast, right? Where we say something positive, we say something negative, we say something, you know, there might be room for growth and improvement here. Um, he, I guess, does have the strength and physical tools to be okay on defense. Um, he was disastrous at times this year off ball. Like, he was, there were points where it looked like he didn't care about the defense. But, you know, he's <laughs> strong. <laughs> Let's, it's kind of funny because... It's really but like he's because, not a good defender. Like let's just like call it. He's not a good defender right now. That that's correct. And it's just funny because of course the left-handed stuff with James Harden and what does Harden do best defensively? It's guard bigger players. And I think that might be what RJ does better. Like best on defense is be able to guard down spots, keep bigger guys, you know, in the post, be able to corral them with his strength. That when I look at him, that might be his best quality right now. I think laterally he's okay when he's engaged. Uh, it's the engagement that's the problem. It's the footwork. It's the angles off the ball. Like you said, significant nightmare at Duke as far as back cuts, um, general feel awareness, not making plays at all. So I think his, his defense kindly optimistically projects as potentially average because of his on ball footwork in time if he improves that his strength level mostly and his size like that's what you're looking for it's mostly physical tools related right now we have got space jam 2 update from shams oh boy lebron damian lillard anthony davis and clay thompson WNBA stars diana tarazi and neka agwumake <laughs> awesome i am fucking pumped for spring hill to drop four million for anthony davis in the like production line items of that movie <laughs> oh man that's great um 
allegedly. This is not. This is not a report. <laughs> this is not libel or slander or anything. Allegedly. Um, all right. So we've got uh, we got RJ or we got RJ Barrett done. I think he's going to be like a twenty point seven assist guy at some point because he's going to have higher volume than what Jarrett does. Um, I think at his peak, he's like twenty point seven assists a game. Maybe twenty two point seven assists a game. So you want him more? Do you see him more as a lead or more as like a wing? Like what what role do you want him in? I want a point guard on the floor next to him at all times, but I am willing for that point guard to act as like a secondary ball handler at times. Like I I want him initiating offense quite a bit. Yeah, I think you kind of have to if he's the kind of player that people think he can. I really like him, honestly, as a wing. I think I'm a little bit higher in his catch-and-shoot ability with this feet set than a lot of people are and his ability to attack closeouts. That's when you see like some of the NC State stuff when he was coming off pin downs, when he was attacking big space. That's where you see the stride length and just how powerful he is to the rim. So I kind of hope he gets eased into it that way, but I have a feeling – you know, going to the Knicks, he's going to have the ball a lot, which is justifiable. If you if you invest a top five pick, usually you're investing in a ball handler. So we'll see what he can do. All right, let's uh, let's move on. Let's talk about John Morant. Uh, this one's honestly simple, I think, in a lot of ways. And you think it's the most complicated thing in the world to evaluate John Morant. Um, John Morant, his game is either going to work or it's not going to work. He is a live dribble creator uh, with exceptional quick twitch. Uh, and exceptional ability to make plays and just elite, elite level passing ability off of a live dribble and elite, elite level vision uh, where he can just make these plays. He can make passes with one hand, like cross corner whip pass with his offhand left hand, Uh, you know, off the dribble, one-handed, right-handed lob catch to like Shaq Buchanan, who's 6'3", put it right on the point. Uh, he's an exceptional passer. Uh, he is ridiculous in terms of his ball handling ability. Explosive leaper off of two feet. Not a great leaper off of one feet, one foot. Um, a guy that scares me a little bit as a finisher. People like think of the dunks when they think of John Morant. I am much more concerned with him inside of 15 feet than what I think most other people are. And I think you are as well. Um, defensively, there are tools uh, he's not great right now just because he had to take so much effort. I mean, he was the guy, the first guy in like the last quarter century to average 24 points and 10 assists in a game or per game. So like there's a lot there um, on his shoulders offensively. And then pull up, like I think the pull up is the biggest question and the pull up will tell us everything that we need to know about if he's going to be like an elite, elite top five guard in the league or if he's just going to be like a top 15 point guard in the league. Uh, he is, he needs to set his feet like at a high level before shooting the basketball. If he doesn't really set his feet, it's probably going to be off because the rest of his can- mechanics kind of falter. But if you go like under a screen and don't like take care of it in terms of really fighting around the screen with your on ball defender, he will knock down a pull up three from NBA range. Like I don't, really have an issue with that and he's not a bad shooter off the catch because once he gets his feet set he's in good shape and it comes up through his balance and he can really just shoot it it's more complicated now though for nba lead guards nba lead guards really have to be able to get to their pull-up games at the end of shot clocks and be able to knock down shots at a consistent level um sometimes when they are off balance and sometimes whenever their balance isn't perfect and i think that that's the key with john morant so 
that is my rant on Ja. I, I think he's <laughs> like De'Aaron Fox mixed with like Rajon Rondo, kind of. Like De'Aaron Fox athletically mixed with Rajon Rondo as a passer, basically is what I think Ja Moran is. Um, how good is that guy in today's modern NBA? I think really good. I think a top 10 point guard in the NBA. Um, but if you notice, neither of those guys are like super high level pull-up shooters. And that might limit his ceiling just like a small amount. Yeah, and when I say he's the toughest evaluation that I've had, it's more in the variance of his outcomes. Like, anybody that's any good at this should be able to tell you what the player is right now with specificity. Like, I agree with everything you said, the limitations, the strengths. It's about how does he get to that outcome, and I see a lot of variance with his potential. Like, I can see him as the engine of an offense. I think that he has that vision. He has the playmaking, the driving kick ability. He has the ability to break down defenses. If the pull-up comes, he has that. Um, I'm not sure if the decision-making is good enough, but I trust enough to where it could happen. But it's just such a high threshold to meet as a true primary creator on a championship-level team. If you think he can be that, and I think he's probably the only bet in this class to be that, it's just very hard. And there's a lot of moving parts. Like we saw against Florida State, when you over and drop him, you force him into those forward momentum pull-ups in the mid-range, the touch shots, finishing through contact with his lack of strength. He didn't yeah, he, fare well. He can't do range. that yet. Yeah, he can't do that. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying about his variance and outcomes is I don't know if he's going to be able to do that. It's possible. But like if he doesn't, if he's just an inefficient scorer and he has the ball all the time, I think that really limits the team substantially. If he's going to have all the possessions, and he's not going to have that scoring efficiency. So I can just see several different outcomes for him. I'm pretty sure he's not going to be a good defensive player. I, I think I can say that with relative confidence just because his strength level – he lapses a ton off the ball. I didn't even love his technique in his freshman year when he was playing a more limited role. So it's a safe bet for most 6'3 guys that aren't strong and don't show good college defense. They're not going to be good in the pros. Uh, so he's going to have to make it up on offense. And that's where I think you see a lot of variance with his outcomes. I've heightened on him in this class because I look at it and say, who the hell do you take over this guy in this class? Like, Who is worthy of going over John Morant and just taking a shot at that initiator upside? So the one thing you didn't really talk about there is the finishing ability. Uh, And by finishing ability, I mean the ability to score around the basket. Uh, Where do you fall on that? I mean, I think that the highlight dunks off of two feet when he can really load up, those overstate his actual athleticism and traffic. When it comes to jumping off one foot, he doesn't have a lot of hit power. So when you see him try to elevate... He can't get that one foot pop unless he just gets like a running head start. He has to shift side to side and navigate. A lot of his finishes are scoop finishes, and he's much more comfortable going to the left. He's got that great extension left finish. I like that, that scoop shot. But through contact, he's he is he's pretty fearless. He's not quite as fearless as De'Aaron Fox, but he does run into bodies. He doesn't take that contact well enough yet. So I think he has to improve his one-foot pop. We've seen point guards in the past do that when they've come into the NBA, but most of them are more power athletes. So Derrick Rose, Russell Westbrook, he's not that kind of athlete. He's not the. That's what I wanted to bring up. Like the Russell Westbrook comparison is the popular one. There's just Russell Westbrook is built like a fucking freighter, like tank engine. Uh, it's just like like Russell Westbrook had a fucking dent in his face and came back in a game <laughs> and like uh, he, the guy is good. a machine. He's a robot. Uh, and like physically, that dude is stronger than like anyone in the NBA pound for pound. Like Jaw isn't that. I mean, like Jaw. Like, look, I'm not like shitting on Jaw Morant. It's just that like Russell Westbrook for a time in the NBA, I think probably from 20. 
14 until 20, what, let's say 17, was genuinely the best athlete in the entire NBA. Like the post LeBron best athlete in the NBA moniker went to Russell Westbrook. It is impossible for people to get there. It's like, do you even want Ja to play that way, though? Like, as far as Russell, like, continuously driving, jumping into bodies, falling down, that takes a lot of wear and tear on your body. And, like, Russell's a freaking tank. You watch him at UCLA and look at how jacked that guy was. This is just another example of what we've been talking about all year in the podcast is that people underrate strength. They underrate how important it is, not only to withhold contact, but just how you absorb it and staying healthy. And I I think Ja... I love the fearless nature of some of his attacks. You see it mostly off closeouts. Uh, is it Kumaji, the Florida State Center? Is the that right? 7-4 guy or Kevin Gelly? Yes. Yeah, no, Kamaji. I know Kevin Gelly. Is that right? Yeah, Chris Kamaji. Yeah, so you remember there's a play in that game. He, he was finishing poor, but he had one closeout attack where he just jumped right into Kamaji and finished with the left. And it was a pretty soft play by Kamaji. But, like, I like that mentality. But do you want to just send him into these over-and-drop bigs and have him just relentlessly fall down. I'm just kind of a little bit concerned about that. (laughs) It's fair. It's very fair. Um, (laughs) So I think he's going to be like a top 10 point guard in the NBA with legit all-star upside. Uh, Where do you kind of fall on this? I absolutely think he has all-star upside. I think he easily could be top five, even top five point guard in the league. I think it's within his range of outcomes. It's, It's on the higher end for sure. I also think he could be, the 15th best point guard in the NBA and that doesn't move the needle so that again that's why I I talk about the variance I think it could go a lot of different ways here right okay Um, number one Zion Williamson I mean we've talked about Zion ad nauseum on this podcast we have gone over the top on Zion Williamson I will give you one more chance to just like go nuts on Zion real quick and I will afford that same chance to whoever doesn't have him number one on their board. You need to correct that right now because it's going to look incredibly bad probably a week or two into the regular season next year. It is like this guy is incredible. Like the, the athleticism, we've talked about that 99th percentile functional athlete on the floor, the speed to power. He's going to be an incredible finisher at the rim. I don't want to even get into the skill in like the defense and all that. We've, I've talked about that enough. What I want to say is one specific point. How many star caliber players like with this kind of pedigree give this much of a fuck on the floor? Like how many times do we see those guys come around that just that he really cares? Like he makes the effort plays. He was doing that in the Canada tour. Like he was diving for balls. He plays through the whistle at times. Like he doesn't always try off the ball defensively. He has his lapses and stuff. But as far as the care factor, like the, the superstar traits, like he, I think he brings all of that to the table. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Uh, he absolutely brings all of that to the table from a culture perspective, motor perspective. Uh, like just, the, it's like the small stuff he does, like the jump stop that covers like eight feet because he's just so much more explosive than like everyone else who's ever played basketball at his size. Um, the ability to like the body control in addition to the explosiveness, uh, like he'll like go up. And then adjust in midair and go from just trying to go for a regular layup over the top into a finger finger roll like underneath a guy's arm. Um, the ability to like avoid contact after going at like ninety percent speed, uh, like he can stop and then go around a guy with a euro step. Um, defensively, I mean, he's a freak show defensively. Like. You have to know where he is at all times defensively because he's an incredible help defender and just like is 
can get to anywhere and everywhere on the court uh, so, so quickly. Just the only thing that is a real concern here is how does he age? Um, If you think that his body will age problematically and you think that, like, an NBA team is not going to be able to stop that and you think an NBA team is going to be able to, like, uh, you know, reverse the process of weight gain at some point, like... You know what? Like, I, I understand that stuff. I think that an NBA team is going to be taking immense. The Pelicans just hired Aaron Nelson from Phoenix, like one of the best uh, performance guys in the league. Like, they're going to be taking immense care in making sure that this guy's frame and body holds up in the long term. Like, this is to not have him at number one is insane. And you can throw like the production out there. You can throw the scouting stuff out there. Uh, I think he's going to shoot it at some point too. Like, I I mean, like at least at a league average clip off the catch, he's shown flashes of being able to shoot it off the dribble. It's just, he's a freak show at the end of the day. Like that dude is the, he is the best prospect since Anthony Davis. Like no question. Yeah. I mean, all of that, I want to say one thing about the hop step. This is something we haven't seen from an athlete like this. So he he doesn't win like Giannis does. Like Giannis is seven feet tall with like incredible length extension, incredible power. He doesn't have uh, the same explosiveness that Zion does. He definitely doesn't have the same lateral burst. Like both the acceleration and the lateral agility. That is just gonna. I think it's gonna be a total nightmare to check that guy in space. And some of this comes down to team building. I think from a team building construct, there's one deficiency in Zion. It is his pull-up shooting. I think we saw we see that with Giannis in the playoffs as far as you, we can just load up on somebody then they can't shoot off the dribble. It, it's tough. So you're, they're going to have to get a guy that can compliment him in that way. That's not Lonzo Ball. That's not his game. They got to find some one dynamic perimeter creator that can shoot off the dribble. And I think then you put Zion in a position where he could be the best player potentially on a championship level team. He's that good, but you need to insulate him a little bit, both with spacing and with a secondary creator, at least. All right. Uh, that's all we got for the top uh, <laughs> 30 guys here, but we're, we're going to have some fun now. We're going to make fun of me a little bit. Um, so every year, my final big board is a look back at my top like 20 or so uh, guys, right? So this year, and that's in the preseason, like the top 20 guys I had in the preseason. So uh, I had Quentin Grimes at six. That was an industry-wide miss. And I will go to I will go to bat for Quentin Grimes saying he was good in high school. There was every reason to believe in him. He was on a very positive upward trajectory and then it just fucking failed at Kansas. Um, like I was very clearly wrong to have him at six. Like no doubt about that, but... At the end of the day, like that's a miss that was industry wide, and I feel comfortable with it. Yeah, I was hiring Grimes just because I saw him at Hoop Summit without any other context, and I've realized my insights at Hoop Summit in a very small incubator have usually been wrong outside of Jarrett Allen. That's the one that has been a positive reflection. So that is just small sample size bias, and I fully acknowledge that. <laughs> I had, I think, I was lower on Charles Bassey than like everyone else in the preseason, but I had Bassey at twenty. And I didn't even, that was another one like Herb Jones. Like, I didn't believe in Bassey at all. He's a <laughs> pro, really. Like, I've, just, I've seen him so much. Like, I called out, like, within multiple articles that I wrote that, like, the fact that he kept winning MVP at these events was bullshit. Like, I didn't get it. Um, yeah, I had him at 20, and, like, I felt, like, I guess that he was a top five recruit, and, like, everyone had him there. I don't know. Like, I was just, that was dumb, though. 
That was really dumb. Like, I fell into groupthink hardcore with Charles Bassey. Yeah, and I remember we talked about him on the podcast. I think after we – I don't know if you went to Hoops Summit that year. I definitely did. But we talked about it on the podcast and said, like, I'm not even sure if this guy's an NBA guy. Like, straight up. Yeah, but like, we, neither I of us were sure. Like, neither of us liked him, really. <laughs> like, no, not at all. I, I guess that, like, I just tried to, like, capture the NBA feel with him a little bit because, like, the NBA was higher on him. Um all right, Lindell Wigginton at twenty-eight. That was he got hurt early in the year. He's just also like was kind of selfish this year and didn't look great on the floor. Um, EJ Montgomery at twenty-nine was a bad look. Like just not that was terrible on my part. Um, he has a chance to be a pro at some point. He just wasn't near ready. Herb Jones at thirty-three. Like you should mercilessly laugh at me for <laughs> Herb Jones at twenty-three or thirty-three. Um, that's like a what the Thir- fuck were you thinking? Thirteen? No. Thir- <laughs> 33. Oh, God. I'm, I'm, um, I'm fucking with you. <laughs> let's see. Let's see where else we got. Um, I had Nikhil Alexander-Walker at 59. That was too low. Um, let's see. Let's see here. Brandon Clark. It's, I had Brandon Clark ranked preseason. I feel like that's a win. Shut it, shut it all down. That's all, that's all we need to say for the rest of the podcast. You had Brandon Clark ranked. You're probably one of like the two or three people that did that. Yeah, I had Windler ranked. Like, I... There, there are some things here that, like, I feel pretty good about, like, hitting. But I had Herb Jones. Fuck it. I had Casey Apollo ranked in the preseason. Like, that's pretty good. Um, I had Herb Jones ranked, though. I had Herb Jones ranked high. Like, like good luck to Herb Jones. Like, I'm not making fun of him. Like, he's limited, and we try, tried to pump him up. NBA folks tried to pump him up more than he was. Like, it was unfair to him more than anything. Um, fuck, man. That's That's dumb. What was I? What was I doing? I had Tyus Battle at twenty six. Um, that was that was high. We probably should have realized that that wasn't a good thing. Yeah, that was one that I was a little skeptical on at the time. I've never been a battle guy, but uh, I remember you making the case for him last in the last class. I think it was more in the second round area. So, yeah, like I'll make a case for Tyus as like a uh, a guy that is worth bringing in for a two way. Like, I'm still in on that boat. Yeah, there you go. I'm uh, I guess I can add to to the party. I only saw a couple guys coming into this year, but definitely had Nasir Little too. I will defend that based on my limited AAU tape. I, I love the kid. I I hope he gets to be like in a better athletic build as far as go back down. Lose strength. I did not have Zion one. I did have him in tier one. And then right when I saw him play at the Canada tour, I was like, this guy's the number one pick. Like everybody else did. <laughs> yeah, I I had Zion it too. Um. You know, I feel fine about that. RJ was the prohibitive number one guy. Um, Nasir Little at three, Cam Reddish at four, like these Romeo Langford at five. Like, this was a weird year. This was a very weird year draft-wise. Uh, you just have to be very willing to move off of your uh, bad takes early as a draft person. <laughs> like, you can't you can't fall into this. Like, next year's class, next year's class is wide open, too. Um, there are a lot of guys that have a case at number one. Like next year is going to be very similar to this one where I'm probably going to be fucking wrong again. <laughs> I think anchoring bias is a bitch. You just got to get out of your own head with it and just be receptive to new information. Yeah. And I'm talking again to the people that still don't have Zion number one, mostly. <laughs> That's a good question. Like, is there anyone that like, I feel like I'm anchored toward this year? Like I, I might have a little bit of that with Nasir. 
Um, I still believe in him. I believe in like the human though, I guess. Um, yeah. Who am, I, who am I anchored with? Is there anyone that I feel like super, like super, it could, like it could be a Deon, like there could be a little bit of that with DeAndre maybe. Um, I, DeAndre is the highest ranked underclassman coming into the year and, you know, um, still feel very strongly about him as a player. Yeah, I think that I'm gonna think rein- done pretty okay. I'm going to reinvent anchoring bias next year with Isaiah Joe. I don't even give a shit. He's going to be top whatever on my board. And I, and I, I get zero fucks about it. You're going to have Isaiah Joe <laughs> at like five. And I'm going to be like, what the <laughs> fuck is happening here, Cole? Absolutely in play. I, I make, I'm not, a, I'm not even going to apologize for it. It's just going to happen. It's inevitable. Oh my God. Um, all right. I think that's all we got. Uh, do you have anything else exciting? Do you have anything that you need to uh, talk about quick? No, I'm just going to have some kind of a big board release. I'm trying to figure out how to convey the information. I think I figured that out. So I'll probably do that either later tonight or tomorrow morning. We'll have ranks updated on the step in as far as other stuff. I think the show Yellowstone comes back tonight. So that's my jam. I'm going to probably save that to watch on Friday night. Kevin Costner is my dude. So that's that's all I got. That's a that's a dad ass show. Cool. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. I'm 31, <laughs> dude. What the hell do you want from me? That's a that's a dad ass <laughs> show. Um, one thing I will say, like people around the league, like are very convinced Darius Baisley is going in the first round, by the way. I have him at like 31 or 30. So like, I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah. That's about where I have, uh, everything. Uh, I think I have him at like, actually I might have him at like 40, but like on the mock, like I have him at 31 or something like he's, he is thought to be very, I don't know about likely, but like he's thought to be a first round pick for a lot of people right now. Yeah, I can see it. Um, trying to think is there anything else that i need to i need to talk about i don't think so um yeah we we went through the bad stuff on my preseason big board so uh (laughs) just tune into this podcast tune into the athletic subscribe to the athletic uh i've been writing way too many words and my brain is fried from it uh Go uh, go read Cole's work on the Stepien as well. Go uh, follow a lot of the great draft work. There's a lot of really good draft work out now. Like I think that that deserves to be said. Um, it's not just me and Cole. I think that a lot of people do really interesting stuff. Um, but yeah, until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.